Welcome to The Wheel Reads, a Wheel of Time podcast. Your hosts are Alan, Chris, and Ian. This podcast is safe for first-time readers with no spoilers. This week, we'll be covering chapters 22, 23, and 24 of The Eye of the World, A Path Chosen, Wolf Brother, and Flight Down the Aranel. Enjoy. All right, so getting started with episode number 12 of The Will Reads. Um, just want to give a quick shout out to everyone that's listening to us. This is our first ever live episode. So with that being said, um, we are recording a little differently. Um, we're, we have one mic in the center of the room, and then um, all three of us are sitting around it. So with that being said, uh, we might have to do some, some editing and things like that to get everything right. You might hear some background stuff as well because it is an open air mic. That here's 360. So if my dog shakes her head or barks or anything like that or anything else happens in the room, you're going to hear that as well on this recording. And it's just the aspect of being live. So our our qualities might go down a bit for anybody that's not listening live. But um, uh, when this episode does get dropped for everybody else, but I uh, just wanted to um, uh, kind of let you know why it might sound different. Um, so moving on to uh, before we get into any further, um, I want to talk about life. Uh, last time we recorded was only like two days ago, so not much has changed besides we're still in lockdown uh, with the coronavirus everywhere. So, uh, you know, we snuck out of uh, quarantine to be together tonight, but we have lots and lots of rum. So hopefully that's killing, uh, <laughs> <laughs> killing any of the any of the. Um, um, unwanted brain cells. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That, that. If, if the regular stuff doesn't work, I brought the 151. So Ooh. we'll wash it down. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. So, yeah. So, um, uh, we got, we do, we do have 151 as well. That's going to be dangerous to be breaking that stuff. We might wait till afterwards, uh, to, to break into the hard, hard stuff. Uh, but we are drinking dark and storms for right now. Um, so, uh, anything else going on with you guys in life? Uh, we are trying to determine how we're going to graduate our seniors this year. This is a new conundrum for the school systems. Um, for a verified credit, people actually have to complete their classes, and we're no longer be able to do that. So we might have some really upset people at the end of the day. Interesting. Hey, I got a good one today. I got an email from work. Those of us teleworking, we have to do this like line by line for every 15 minutes we're working at home, telling them what we're doing. <laughs> so my whole my whole team that sent theirs in today apparently i wasn't the only one trying to be funny but there were lines like uh cursed at the vpn 30 minutes uh walked around anxiously wondering what to do with myself you know two hours <laughs> try to resist drinking a beer during work <laughs> all day long you know so we'll, we'll see how that turns out but i thought that was funny sure all right um and then uh, um before we get into anything else, I think Ian's this week for your state or country. Yeah, I'm going to keep mine in the states. I believe we still need to hit Alaska. Uh, so you guys out there, if you got Alaska buddies, I'll wait a little bit. If it doesn't pop, I know I got some friends out there in the military. So, But I'd like to see our, our listeners uh, grab a friend and get them to listen. Sure. Sounds good. Um, and then as far as predictions from last week before we get in. So from last week, uh, Tom is a Gandalf super ninja. Uh, Rand, uh, there's there goes the dog. Uh, Rand can use the one power um, or something. We're not sure there, but uh, something's going on there. Uh, Nynaeve and Lan are now going to be a thing. I think Nynaeve's going to be a thing with everyone, is what we're sounding like. Uh, <laughs> and then uh, Alan, myself, is a dark friend. 
So those are our uh, our, our predictions. Um, one of those is true. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's it's one truth and three lies. Um, so <laughs> that's that's how we're doing is that. that confirmation. <laughs> <laughs> Don't know which one's the true one. Um, so yeah, so. Moving on to chapter 22, A Path Chosen. Once again, we're going to start with the symbol. It's uh, the night tree. So we now know the name of the symbol. <laughs> oh, I, I just, that's what we've called it before. I mean, it's the, I mean, I don't think there's names for any of the symbols. But <laughs> no, I think uh, the, the symbol is what it is. It always introduces us to that idea of, you know, people out in the woods, taking a path, trying to find their way. Um, and it's funny because of the name of this chapter, but we'll keep that moving. <laughs> right. Yeah, I, I honed in more on the title than the symbol, and I rolled my eyes when I saw Chosen. Uh, however, I think we actually had some choices made this time. So I think I think Jordan figured out what a choice means. <laughs> <laughs> sure. So this is a parent chapter. So we start with a parent waking up the next day after uh, swimming across the, the river there. Um, and a bunch of branches and, um, and uh, you know, he's, he's cautious getting up and cautious looking around and kind of describes the scenery, what's going on. So start with that scene and have you guys kind of take it from there. I had uh, right off the bat immediate flashbacks to basic training. Uh, it was the cedar needles pricking him through his still damn clothes that finally pricked through his exhaustion as well. Uh, I'm sure other people in other walks of life have, done something to the point of exhaustion where it doesn't matter where you are, you pass out and fall asleep. Uh, but to fall asleep in a pile of pine needles and using them as your blanket and cover and whatnot, just extremely uncomfortable. But, you know, the way we left off last time, him crossing the river, we know just so exhausted, it didn't matter. Uh, and, and if we have any vets out there, uh, you know, there was that field exercise towards the end of basic where they did everything they could to keep you from sleeping. So, any, any break where you could take a knee or lean against a tree, you found a way to fall asleep. So I, I felt him on that one, just extremely uncomfortable, but didn't matter. Passed out anyways. I know I would not have survived that part of basic if I had been in the military because <laughs> I did not do without my sleep. So yeah, I would have been just like him. I would have passed out. <laughs> sure. So yeah, so he's, um, you know, search patrolics kind of like uh, looking around uh, on the banks of the river, seeing, you know, I, he keeps on going back to say, Land said they couldn't cross the river, that they, they wouldn't go across the river, but he's still nervous that there's somewhere over here. And he's kind of crouching down, going from tree to tree and kind of stalking, looking for a Gwaine, uh, figures that she'll be downriver than him because uh, he was a better swimmer and that was his logic. Um, and, and starts making it, make his way down, like I said, then he finds um, a trap. Um, and he recognizes the track right, right, right away because he is the blacksmith. So uh, he made, um, you know, obviously, the, 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 the shoe for the horse. Um, and it can tell the crossbar or whatever on, on it. I'm not, a, I'm not a farrier. I can see what they're called. But, um, so, uh, but then finds a going um, in a, a little patch of trees. So we'll take it from there, that scene. All right. Before I steal your thunder, did you want to back us up? Or can I, or can I back this up first? You do it first. All right. All right. So I'm going to back it up. I don't have a whole lot of comments on this, but this paragraph, uh, it it jumped out at me. And it seems like one of those things that I don't know if there's irony built into it or, or maybe at least I want to come back and read it after reading a few books or at least the, maybe the whole series. And, and I think it's going to have different meaning. Uh, but he was talking about time in general. Uh, and parents thinking, he says, time was the problem. He thought with a sigh, dry clothes with a little time, a 
rabbit to roast and a fire to roast it over with a little time. His stomach rumbled and he tried to forget about eating altogether. There were more important uses for that time. One thing at a time. And the most important thing first, that was his way. So in, in, in this moment, obviously they list the things he wishes he had had time for, but I can only imagine yeah. where the story is going to take us and uh, time as you know it is going to become much more critical, much more important. So I have that one highlighted, but I also got a tab in the book so I can reference back to it and uh, see, see if it takes on new meaning in book 14. <laughs> sure. <laughs> sure. Oh, yeah. I caught some body language there, Alan. <laughs> the, the language you're catching because in our live chat, they say take a drink for every time I say sure. So I'm going to make sure I say sure a lot. <laughs> <laughs> Some people are having alcohol poison tonight. Huh? <laughs> um, uh, just going over like some of the basic thoughts. Um, first off, favorite line of the book or of this chapter, if wishes were wings, sheep would fly. Yes. Um, I love that quote, especially since his wish was that he'd find a friend. And then, of course, he found one. So now I'm wondering whether or not sheep fly in this world. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Is that a prediction? That no. She, yeah. I mean, if, if she do fly, though, we got some real interesting things going sure. on. Somebody's definitely on something. Um, but I do like uh, the, the description that we're starting to get in regards to parents' level of observation. Um, looking at the different uh, things that were going on, the way he was thinking – Going back a little bit, he said, but he was more used to walking than riding, and his boots were stout and well-sold. Like, here's an individual that definitely may have had a harder life than the others around. He had nothing to eat, but his sling was still wrapped around his waist, and that, um, or the snare lines in his pocket, ought to of a rabbit. So you can see he's at least knowledgeable in regards to how to gather food or how to trap. And I know that's something that seems to be really relevant to the um, individuals from Edmonds Field. Like, they all kind of have that basic knowledge. Um, and then they all seem to be great trackers. Like, I don't know why that would be a thing for all of these children. But here he is. He, um, it says he dashed from the growth to growth in a crouch, throwing himself down when he was among the trees to study the riverbank, the far side as well as his, the words said the river would be a barrier to Faze and Trollic, but would it? So he's questioning the um, whether or not Land knew what he was talking about. But he says seeing him might be enough to overcome their reluctance to cross the deep water. So he's like doubting, but then he also is realizing maybe they're not going to cross unless they see him. So he's doing a really good job of staying hidden. That's another skill that clearly was taught. And it's like, why are these Edmund builders taught to be so cautious? And why are they so good at tactics? And he said he watched carefully from behind the trees and ran from one hiding place to the next fast and slow. So I don't know if that goes back to the whole idea that they were, you know, born of and taught by, you know, people from a warring tribe that, you know, essentially has been watered down over time. But here are some really great tactical survival skills that most people probably never get and then as alan mentioned you hear about the the shoes of the horse and so he knows this because it's the double crossbar that master luhan added for strength so you can see that these people have developed skills around warring and tactics and they're not common to other groups so even though they may no longer be what they once were 
you kind of get some insight on their past based on what they currently do. So I just think that's all very interesting how Jordan ties that in together. And then again, he kind of sneaks up on Egwene and it's like, he, um, behind a small fire, Egwene crouched her face grim with a thick branch held like a club and her back against Bella's flank. So even she being a female from that area she knew that she needed to make sure she couldn't be flanked and she wanted to keep herself close to the animal because Bella seems to be protective. You know, she is the creator and all. <laughs> Go Bella. Uh, and then she had the um, fortitude and the mental knowledge to actually create or fashion a branch into a club or to at least find one that was strong enough to use. So she was prepared to fight, which is really interesting because we don't really see that from her much. Um, we see that she's spicy, but not a fighter. And then, of course, we get the, I guess I should have called out, which is kind of where we're at now. They finally found each other. And he made the comment, here you were worried about her, and she's done a better job than you. Because here she is, she's created her own flame. She's drying herself out. She's got her um, saddlebag. So she's a lot better prepared for survival. She still has her horse. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) She's still got the horse. Kind of critical. (laughs) So. Yeah. So as as you're talking, I know we're spending a lot of time on this part, but this is our first opportunity where both Perrin and Egwene are totally by themselves. And it only happened for a little while. I know we were talking, we were worried they might be separated for a long time, but at no point were they like really panicky. And you think about their age, shoot, forget their age. I know how old I am right now. Like if we were going through something like this and I wind up on the other side of a river and I have no idea where the heck I am, my first thoughts waking up would be like, what the fuck? (laughs) (laughs) But it's like immediate critical thinking by all of them and and Perrin in particular. Like he was a block and now he's starting to take shape. Uh, He just kind of quickly ran through all the info he had in his mind. And he even assessed where he got it from. He's like, well, Land told me this, and I might not like Land, but that's the only information I got, so we're going to roll with it sort of thing. So, oh, yeah, pretty impressed. And we got to be really impressed by Bella because she's the one that got to go into safety. Yeah. yeah well, Bella, Bella's, Bella's the hero. Well, yeah, no, when, once I saw Bella, I just underlined it and wrote, yay. <laughs> <laughs> she, she is the hero. And then so we get to the, the part towards the end of the chapter where the, the, the path chosen, this is when kind of parent takes the lead it kind of explains his thought process. You know, uh, uh, I think, you know, he thinks about it, thinks it through. The parent's the thinker. And he's like, you know, I sh- we shouldn't go to White Bridge. I think that would be a bad idea because that's what they expect us to do. I love this. This is my second favorite, but it's also the funniest portion. Um, he said, <laughs> uh, I guess, it's, I-, I suppose we can't, though, in regards to where they're going and where they're not going to go. And he goes, I've been thinking. And then it says, Egwene raised her eyebrows. <laughs> he said, but he used to surprise, uh, excuse me. <laughs> he was used to surprise whenever he claimed an idea. Even when his ideas were as good as theirs, they always remembered how deliberate he was in thinking of them. So we can wait for Land and Moraine to find us. Of course, she cut in. Moraine Sadai said she would find us if we were separated. He let her finish, then went on. Or the Trollocs could find us first. Moraine could be dead, too. All of them could be. No, Egwene, I'm sorry, but they could be. I hope they are all safe. I hope they walk up this fire, or excuse me, walk up to this fire any minute. And then, of course, the favorite. But hope is like a piece of string when you're drowning. 
it just isn't enough to get you out by itself. Yeah. Yeah. Like, that's a pretty powerful quote because, mm-hmm. especially in the current moments, like, we have a lot of hope that what's going on with the COVID-19 will be fleeting and passing. Um, but hope isn't going to help us with where we're at currently. Sure. Um, and really what it takes is people who have the knowledge and the credibility and who are actually going out there day-to-day putting themselves uh, in front of this um, pandemic and helping others. So like this quote has a lot of meaning to me this week because we can't just rely on hope. Yeah. Yeah. yeah there's actually a, um, I, 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 my work, I'm in sales uh, to some degree is kind of what I'm not going to get into what I do for a living, but I'm in sales finance, those kind of things. And I had a mentor um, when I was uh, younger in my career they used to always, and they're actually a book. It's not his book, but he used to always say it over and over again that hope is not a strategy. You know, when, whenever you're looking at doing something, I think that applies. I've used that a lot in life. Like it's it's a good it's a good coping mechanism. It's good to get you through some really tough times to have hope. And and I'm not discounting hope as a coping mechanism as a personal mental thing. It's good for that. But if that's your only thing, it's not a strategy. Um, yeah. You know. It, yeah, uh, coming up with a tactical plan of how we're going to get about something is a strategy. Just saying, I hope things work out is not a strategy. Um, and, and that's what this line's kind of getting at. Because um, a lot of times you'll find people, you know, not, not just in sales, but you go to any kind of, uh, whether it's the military or anything like that. And, you know, if, if you're just relying on hope, that, that's not a plan. Um, yeah. And, <laughs> and so I know it doesn't say this, but it gives you a hint to how Perrin was raised. Because... That's the exact mentality that you were just talking about that he used. Uh, like I said, he didn't bother panicking too much. He gives the line about about hope and was immediately like, look, this is what we know. This is what our options are. We could go here, but we know the Trollocs and they're, they're probably going to be looking for us there. So maybe we skip ahead to the next stop sort of thing. So right. he just immediately gets into that critical thinking. And- sure. And that's what he suggests. He's just they had the Camelin. And um, he's, you know, he's ready for Egwene to disagree with him, but then she agrees. So, uh, which surprises him as well. Um, you know, and it kind of ends the chapter with them heading east and Perrin, Perrin worried about what if a Marine doesn't actually make it there. What are we going to do next? If they make it all the way to Camelin and then, you know, they, they didn't make it. Everybody else didn't make it. They're the only ones left alive. And that ends this chapter. Um, before we move on to the next chapter, anything I missed or anything you guys want to talk about? Well, I just like to point out, like, this is where parent will allow hope to come into play. I, I identify a parent because of my background, the way I was raised. We never really had room for hope because we never knew whether or not we were going to have meals the next day. Um, but future thought, like, yeah, today, tomorrow, this coming week, we need to have a plan. But maybe in the next month, two months, six months, we can hope that this will occur and life will be better. Sure. So I think it's just really interesting that he allowed hope to happen for the future, but in the current moment, he needed a, a seat or a, a, a plan. <clears throat> and even in his forethought, he's just like, two weeks ago, you'd never seen an Aes Sedai, and now you're talking about the Emerald Seat lights. So here he is realizing how far he's come in such a small amount of time and then the importance of what he's learned in his past to what's currently happening in his future. So um, it was just really cool. Yeah, and, and that same line, that was the last one I had underlined uh, just before that, where he says, if you say so, but if she doesn't appear in Camelin in a few days, we go on to Tarvalon and put our case before the Armland seat. 
so back to how I was like just thoroughly impressed with his critical thinking and everything. He's got a plan A. He's got a plan B. He's he's already thinking this through to the end. Like, all right, it, it'd be great if we meet up with them at some point. But if that doesn't happen, this is how we're going to keep moving sort of thing. So that's I don't know, it's pretty impressed. Well, and then he says to kind of in the chapter, if he was the leader, it was time to start leading. So now we've got this, I believe, in foreshadowing to a certain extent. And Jordan has surprised us or, you know, throughout the book already. So maybe this is just foreshadowing to Perrin being the one or maybe an important one. Sure. So there's, I guess, a prediction is that Perrin will take on a much larger leadership role um, by book six. <laughs> I was waiting for 14. <laughs> I like how you mix yeah, it up six, there. Six, six is a good book. That's, yeah. uh, yeah, that's, a, that's a good prediction. I about that. I'll, I'll, I'll take six. Uh, <laughs> 14, he's either dead or he's got a family. So. Sure. <laughs> and Rand ain't got no legs. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. By the way, they corrected Amarlin, not Armlin, Amarlin. So yeah. Anyway, almost said Armorall. So yeah, Armorall, Armorall. Yeah. No. <laughs> yeah. So just so we can reiterate, we love it when you guys give us how to pronounce because I have been right. dedicated to not doing research, mm-hmm. so that you know puts us in a bad puts me in a bad spot because I'm definitely not caring how to pronounce the names because if I start down that track, I will spend my entire next week at work understanding everything about this book and that's not sure. the idea and i think the first time i read the book too i had all these ways i thought it was said and it wasn't until i started listening to other podcasts and and other youtubers that i had to change my thought because i already had my my head canon what all these things are supposed to sound like and i never bothered to read the glossaries because i thought i was boring um you know, so, and I, so. I have heard like jordan had in interviews yes things differently yeah and, the same name differently so yeah um yeah, um, and, and yeah, and, and the first original editions as well. I didn't have those, but they didn't have glossaries either. So, I mean, everyone was kind of out on the yeah. uh, was on the loop until then. All right, moving on to chapter twenty-three, Wolf Brother. So, um, obviously, we have a new symbol here. It's uh, I, I think there's no surprise. It's a wolf. Um, hence, Wolf Brother. Uh, I don't think we have to talk too much about that symbol. I think you guys can can guess um, what uh, it's a warg. So essentially, um, this is not really a wolf. It's a person in a wolf's body. No, oh, completely, <laughs> completely joking. But then again, uh, this this chapter does get pretty interesting. I, I'm excited for this chapter. I've been excited for this chapter for a few days. Um, wolves are my favorite animal by far. Like I was that weird kid. I'm going to tell a little bit about myself because I could give a damn at this point in my life. You I was that kid that would howl at the moon. Because yes. I wanted to be a wolf so bad. Like, I was oh. the werewolf kid, like, in the neighborhood. I definitely believe in the lunar calendar for all those ladies out there. Like, I knew <laughs> probably TMI, but I could tell when my when my ex-fiance was nearing her moment by the way <laughs> the moon was. <laughs> That's awesome. awesome. Just so y'all know, I'm also slightly inebriated already because I'm a lightweight. <laughs> <laughs> nice. I love, I love the balance because, honestly, like, I didn't expect any of this in this chapter, and I'm just like, oh, that's cool. Wolves, yay. <laughs> <laughs> See, as, as in Chris was the thinker, like Barrett, and, re- and thinks into it, and, and Ian's or Matt, who's like, oh, let's just start reading, see what happens. Yeah. Maybe, the wolves, <laughs> maybe the wolves can find us some treasure. <laughs> All right. So, so Perrin and Egwene are uh, arguing about riding Bella. Um, I, I'd love this scene just because Perrin's complaining that you know he's too big for Bella and uh, and he feels like this is not what adventures are supposed. Our hero stories are supposed to be like. You know, the leader takes charge and doesn't get 
get harassed by the little village girl. It's like bashing him over the head to, to, you know, to make him ride. Um, he's supposed to be leading and be the big, strong guy. So, um, you know, and, and, um, and, and they kind of get to this point where um, they decide to stop for, I guess, for a little bit. So Perrin can go hunt and, and tells Egwene to make a fire. Um, we'll kind of start with that scene. All right, if you guys want to talk about the argument too. You mean the arguing or a guy in regards to riding Bella? I love how Bella was cutting her eyes like shit. I don't want him riding. <laughs> she wasn't like, sure about that either. <laughs> like little, so like um, funny story. Back in December, I went to South Carolina to spend fa- time with family, and my uncle, he's a farm boy from Michigan, and he had to bring some of the farm to South Carolina with him. So he went out and bought this horse who. They thought was about 13 years old, but you look at her teeth and you think otherwise. She's got to be about 15 or 16. Um, And my little cousins rode this horse. And so, like, for some odd reason, I thought maybe I'd try to give it a try. Mind you, I'm 330 pounds and I'm six foot six. This horse and I probably weighed about the same amount. (laughs) (laughs) She literally, like, collapsed down. She was not having that shit. Like, she saw me start to swing my leg, dropped her front legs, dropped her back legs. And plopped. Like she does not have <laughs> Nope. So I know how Bella felt. <laughs> Chris Brick the squeaker. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I was leading her too, and I tried to get her to gallop, and she just collapsed straight to the ground. She's like, dude, I'm not having this. You're not going to pull me like this. I am done. Oh, my so, goodness. So, <laughs> sure. Anyway. So, yeah, so Perrin does catch a rabbit and uh, comes back to Egwene just staring at, you know, kind of some sticks. And Perrin's like, you can't wish a fire. Like, get your flint out. And uh, Perrin didn't realizes realizes what Egwene's trying to do and kind of has this little freak out moment where he's like, don't do that. I, I, I don't have anything to do with the power. If you're trying to use the power and she's like, well, it came so easy last night. I made the fire. I think I can do it again. And Perrin's like, I don't want you doing any of that. Don't, don't do anything like that. And, um, and she kind of is upset about this too, because obviously she wants to be a nice guy. So, well, that, and that's, that's her weapon. And that's kind of the argument she makes to him. Like, what are you just going to give up your axe? I mean, no, this, this is what I got to work with. So I need it. Uh, but also I wrote a little note. Um, we already knew uh, if we trust what Moraine said, that the clock's kind of ticking um, for these ladies that have already tapped into the power at some point, they need to get trained properly or this will go mad and it'll lead to their death. But now that she's able to do this, and she's doing it intentionally on her own, and there's nobody there to guide her. Uh, I just have a little note next to it that clock's ticking. So before, uh, I, I mentioned I was excited to see the characters kind of separate and go their own way because we get to learn more about them. But I'm actually a little nervous. She's so eager to use the power. She obviously can do it on her own now and is more aware of it. Like, how much time does she actually have before she starts having issues, uh, going mad, whatever, we talked about before, like it's kind of like doped up on heroin. I don't know. Yeah, However, you sure. want to consider it, she needs her teacher again. You know, mm-hmm. so. definitely agree with that. And I think it's really interesting. Like it is a rush. It gave her uh, a point for being. Like I feel like that's the thing with people in general and looking at these characters, not only as you know fictional characters, but um, individuals that are developing. Like we need a sense of self, and we need a sense of belonging. We need a purpose. And this was supposed to be her purpose. First, she was supposed to be a great wisdom. And now she's supposed to be a great Aes Sedai. And she's been promised both of these things by two different people. Really, it's, you know, like that old, like, choose your path, like blue pill, red pill, dark side, light side. Like, so she's trying to come into herself. 
So for her to give up attempting to create the fire would be just like her giving up her trying to discover her purpose. Yeah. Um, and then I think there's something interesting too that I don't know that she really thought about because she um, is just learning to tap into her magic. But uh, I know that it was mentioned by Moraine earlier that you essentially have elemental magic here. And she mentioned it was so easy to do when she was near the river. And mind you, the river is not fire magic. Maybe she was drawing on the one power through the water around her. Maybe her element is water. And that allowed her to have the energy to create the fire. Now, that sounds counterintuitive because it's fire and water, but um, she needs to have a source or a way to draw the one power. And unless she's also a wind elemental, she has to be able to channel that power through something. So maybe being near the river, already being wet, you know, maybe Mm -hmm. she's able to draw on the the energy that was uh, from the one power through the water. To then create the fire. So now I got to ask, in these two instances, one where she did it easily and then one not so easily, how close was she to Bella? Huh. Uh, <laughs> maybe the creator. The creator. <laughs> Just ride Bella all the way to Voldemort's house and, you know, bam. Yeah. yeah. Story's over. So it, it says that she does. She doesn't, you know, even though the parent does not do it that night, it and, I'm not sure how many nights they go on, but she says that every night she does try again and again. And all she can manage is a little smoke sometimes, but obviously she's doing something. I mean, she can get a little smoke, but yeah. can't start a fire again. Um, uh, so parent starts it with, with a, with a bow, a fire bow, which if, uh, you know, I was a scout. Um, I never made it to like Eagle Scout or anything like that. And, and they did try to make us do the bow, bow, um, fire bow thing. Yeah, that that's not a cool way to start a fire <laughs> at all. It's it actually is a pain in the ass and um, very, hard. very very hard and not. I mean, I'm sure like, these country guys that you know they're in this village type scenario, they're very very more uh, used to doing that strategy. Uh, as a young kid uh, trying to do that when I was in middle school, uh, it was very very tough. And of course, I'm not an expert on it by any means. I couldn't do it today probably, um, um, but that's neither here nor there. Um, so. Um, you know, moving on, you know, at this point they're starving. Um, they've been for days. They can't find, and maybe they found a few mushrooms, you know, they could eat, um, you know, and, and a few shoots and things like that. But they're, they're, they're literally starving. You think about how many calories you're, if you're going on long hikes like this, like where they're walking day and day, all day long, even if it's flat ground, doesn't matter. Um, you need food. Like you were going to starve faster in this scenario, even with a horse doesn't matter. Um, cause one person's walking, if you're taking turns, um, um, the fact that they, they don't have food that they, you know, I think it describes it as it feels like a, a hole in his stomach. I was about to eat right through them. Self, you know, like yeah, at least they went on a nice trip because they found some mushrooms and they said they gobbled them down and then they were laughing and telling stories. So, <laughs> but I said they weren't, I was about to come they were straight that tripping for a little bit. Uh, they weren't the best though, because it said yeah. it didn't last very long. Right. And it did a little bit more than yeah. their hunger. And by the way, Go ahead. Came, sorry. came down from the high, and then they're like, "Oh wait, oh, no, wait. we're still in a rough we're spot." <laughs> and I love how he's starting to bring in words to the challenges: acquiesce and then mirth. Like, who uses that language? Like pirates. <laughs> I'm just inclined to acquiesce your request. <laughs> Means no. <laughs> it's like, why are you trying to educate me? All I want to do is read the damn book. <laughs> Right. Yeah, well played. So, yeah. So, um, like I said, they see no rabbits or anything like that. And there's no signs of life or anything like that. Things are getting bad. Um, 
and, and they find some ruins. They don't want to get close to that because they still have, uh, you know, the thoughts of Shutter Logoth close, you know, very, very fresh in their minds. Um, so they don't want to get anywhere close to those things, and they're all abandoned anyways. Um, and it does mention this one line that Perrin is having dreams of ba- Balzaman chasing him through, through a maze. And I made a note of that. Um, uh, it, it kind of is a passing comment in this chapter because uh, yeah. it gets right to the scene where Perrin smells a fire. Um, but we'll talk about that in the next chapter more. But <laughs> still clever how he dropped it because I, I underlined it. And you're right. I didn't think of it again until you mentioned it because he just Jordan moved right into something else. And I was like, ooh, we're going to meet another character. So I just I didn't think about it again until I looked at my my note here. Sure. Before we go on, because at least I have to do this at least once a chapter, though. Um, I am really interested in the stone tower, broken top, brown, old moss, leaning like a huge oak, which roots slowly toppled, but they found no place where men had breathed in living remembrance. And I want to know more about the ruins that they're going across. Like we had this conversation earlier on in our episodes about this idea that we could be looking at uh, post-apocalyptic America. Um, so that's why Canada is the blight. I want to know. We love Canada. Even though you close your borders to us. Anyway, <laughs> at least our podcast reaches all. Yeah. Um, I'd like to know more about these ruins. I don't know that they ever come into play necessarily in the next you know, 14, 15 books. But um, the idea that there are these lands that have been left to ruin for so long and this concept of time, like who knows where the landscape will go or become over the course of the book? Because we have given these ideas that we could have time travel at play. Um, The post-apocalyptic America has come into play. Like now I really do pay attention to the details, um, especially since we know that some of the smallest things in the book then become larger things later. And we start to mention these ruins. It's like, why? Yeah, um, there's got to be a purpose. But I've also, so Alan mentioned early on, pay attention to details because things can come back. But every once in a while, there's going to be something that at the end of the series, you just go, wait, wait, he never, he never came back to that one. <laughs> <laughs> what does it all mean? <laughs> Have you ever seen the show Lost? So we then come around to Bella being the first who's like really intuitive. The the mayor flared her nostrils and swung her head, and the next moment he seized her bottle before she could wick her, but she was smelling the smoke. And of course, Egwene follows up after, but Bella's like, no shit, I've already told you. Like, I am the creator. I know all. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, But um, Perrin then, again, starts his internal monologue. And I really think it's interesting that he starts to evaluate his inability to use his axe. Um, he really talks about how he never could quite manage the void that Rand in the water had talked about. And that the um, battle axe never quite gave him any more confidence than the sling that he had. Which kind of goes to that survivalist mentality that the people of the two rivers must have. Like he is a okay with using a sling, and he's apt to use it. I mean, he caught the rabbit with it once, so like served a purpose. It served a purpose. Mm-hmm. Clearly, he needs to start working on his axe skills a little bit better if we're going to use him to be a great leader eventually. But I do really think that it's cool how he has these thoughts even in the moment, 
Um, but then I think it's also funny how his hunger just kind of takes over. Sure. <laughs> but parents still being cautious, cautious about it. I mean, uh, Egwene is, uh, Egwene is really, really excited and parents like, no, stay back. Let me go check it out. I'll investigate. And he kind of sneaks up to see what's going on. And he sees this man. Um, there's no one like anyone he's ever seen before. And, um, we have a description of him here too, but it looks like he's sleeping. Um, and there's six rabbits cooking on, over the fire. Um, and kind of get a description of yeah we cannot skip the description okay. like I love it it says he was <laughs> the strangest fellow parent had ever seen for one thing his clothes all seemed to be made from animal skins with the furs still on which is weird because normally they're going to take that off even his boots and the old flat top round cap on his head so he's kind of like they got that Johnny Appleseed look for those who know who that is. Mm-hmm. Um, we're Virginians. We learn our history. <laughs> his cloak was a crazy quilt of rabbit and squirrel. His trousers appeared to be made from the long-haired hide of a brown and white goat. Gathered at the back of his neck with a cord, his graying brown hair hung to his waist. So he's clearly got some age on him because he's got graying brown hair. A thick beard fanned across half his chest. A long knife hung at his belt almost a sword, and a bow and a quiver stood propped against a limb close to hand. So clearly he's a hunter. Clearly he's an individual who um, is really confident in himself, and he's lived a long life, so his skills have at least given him, you know, a lot to go off of. So Mm -hmm. I really like the way this character sounds. Sure. I hope he lives on forever. I hope Jordan is not a Martin, or Martin is not a Jordan. Yes, (laughs) right. Yeah, sure. time is not a thing. So yeah, so it seems like he's he's sleeping, and the parents are just kind of watching him. And then uh, this gentleman's name is Elias. We figured out the next scene. So Elias, and Elias says, uh, "You know, I, you're are you done drooling over there?" Uh, <laughs> it turns and looks right at him. Uh, you know, and um, and, and you know, calls him out and, and tells him, you know, he's been watching for the last two days. Yeah, he says, "Your friend, <laughs> you and your friend might as well sit and have a bite. I haven't seen you eat much the last couple of days." Like, Perrin hesitates, then stood slowly, still gripping his axe tightly. You've been watching me for two days. So here we've talked about their survival aptitude, but then they've been tracked for two days and didn't even know it. So that either talks to this guy's skills, or we've been giving them too much credit. Yeah, well, we're, we're starting to lead into it, and Perrin is referencing his ability to be quiet enough that the prey, the rabbit, doesn't hear him. <laughs> but we're we're getting ready to be introduced to a whole pack of hunters, and they're on a whole different level. Sure. So, so yeah, I and mean, the first thing that Perrin notices also is Elias's eyes. You know, they're yellow gold, like, burnished gold. Yeah, he's um, been chugging the one fifty one, and his, <laughs> his livers failed. His livers failed. That's jaundice all the way. Uh, <laughs> I don't want to make a joke about it because someone might be out there. But uh, that's the first jaundice. thing I thought of when I saw it. <laughs> I was born with jaundice. Yeah. <laughs> Sure. <laughs> I love it. He said, the horse is the only one of you that doesn't tramp around loud enough to be heard five miles off. <laughs> yeah. Bella, which when we met her, she was just the workhorse. She pulled a freaking cart. But we, she has ninja skills. We also have to remember that, like, Rand blessed Bella at the beginning. I don't care what anybody says. Yeah. Either she's the creator or Rand gave her power. So we're going to yeah, find so, that out yeah. soon. So, so you know, Perrin calls Egwene over, and they both start to eat. They don't talk at all. Elias just stays quiet until they're almost done. Then, then you know, Elias kind of perks up and says, "So, so what are you guys doing out here?" And they say, "We're heading to Camelin." 
uh, he starts laughing because we're well, heading the wrong way. Uh, you know that that and you get a couple of places here. So I'm gonna talk about that. You know, so you'll go to the spine of the world. If you happen to cross that, you'll get to the IO waste, and you kind of get a description of that. So um, you know, we've we've talked a little bit about men, um, you know, going way back to the beginning of the book, um, you know, the savages and things like that. But um, uh, we get you know, Jordan does a really good job of just dropping these little clues and things like that throughout the book. So. I don't know if you guys highlight that or I did actually, and Alan does a great job of dropping those clues too. Uh, <laughs> sure, <laughs> sure. <laughs> talking about the Isle of Waste, he said you'd broil by day and freeze by night and die of thirst any time. So of course we're talking about the desert. He said it takes an Isle man to find water in the waste, and they don't like strangers much. No, not much, I'd say. So it almost seems as if he has had some type of interaction with them. And again, he's an older man, so he's lived a life. Who knows what he's been through? Um, as far as the Islemen, like he, when I think of them, I kind of think of our Middle Eastern uh, individuals, and that's kind of merging worlds here since my mind we're now in post-apocalyptic United States. But you know, <laughs> we're, not, we're not thinking about those sand people from it's, Star Wars. I, no. <laughs> yeah, sorry, I guess. No, you're right. Yeah, I was way off. Uh, but no, and I love parents' thought because he's like, "Are we eating with a madman?" And you know, there's got to be a certain level of madness to a person who's out in the wilderness on his own that looks the way he does. But then there's also a lot of intelligence there, so I'm interested to learn more about him as we go along. Yeah, sure. Hey, I'll, I'll try not to make too many sailing references, but uh, I'm looking at Alan right now. When you're traveling around from marina to marina, who's the most interesting dude to go talk to? The liveaboard. The liveaboard. That, that is old and sketchy and yeah, bearded yeah, uh, and for some reason still has attractive women come by from time to time. Yeah. But and they, they have the best story. Well, usually the reason why they live on their boat is because they want to be off the grid because they've been arrested so many times. And they- yeah, <laughs> I mean, there's that. But before that happened, they traveled a lot. Like, oh, did, you, yeah. go, you go bring them a drink and just start asking them about their life and you'll hear the craziest stories from countries all over. So, did, Were you with us when we, when we had a drink with that guy in, in Gloucester? Um, yeah. And the one who kept sneaking out of the nursing home. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> his, his kids had put him in a nursing home and he owned a boat. And he kept on sneaking out to go back to his boat. And he invited us over drinks one time. And the guy was, was literally crazy. Um, was all sorts of like, just talking about, having a good time. Yeah. He was talking about eating his parrot one time. And like, cause he was at sea and he was starving and like all sorts oh, of others, like it, just, yeah. It was hard to yeah. filter the truth true, true, from the yeah. storytelling. He had no idea what was real and what was not. The, the guy was definitely anyway, lost. Anyway. Um, little time, little time. Little time, yeah. Back to this. Uh, so, <laughs> so um, you know, Egwene says, well, can you at least give us a direction? If we're heading the wrong way, can you tell us which way is Camelin? He says, and he kind of goes into, I don't really like people. Camelin has too many people. And, and you know, I, I don't want to be around people because my friends don't. People don't like my friends. You know, the people I hang out with. And. Um, you know, Gwen doesn't ask for help, and, and Elias kind of cuts him off. Says, "You guys got to be still, because my friends are actually coming right now." Yeah, I like his the way he says it too. He's like, "Cities are full of people. I don't go near villages or even farms very often. Villagers, farmers, they don't like my friends. I wouldn't even have helped you if you hadn't been stumbling around as helpless and innocent as newborn cubs." Mm. Like, why use those choice of words? Of course, we know. We as the readers, we're you know omnipresent at the moment. Um, we know what's going on, but if I would have heard it that way, I'd be like, all right, this dude is definitely off his rocker. 
Mm-hmm. And then, of course, you know, the whole be still, my friends are coming is always interesting. And then Bella's like, holy cow. Yeah. Bella starts freaking out because, <laughs> because then we have four gigantic wolves. I mean, these are like, from what he describes it, like almost like dire wolf status. I mean, like just like yeah. Game of Thrones, like big, big wolves. And wolves actually are big. Like you think of like the normal dog, a wolf is a whole lot bigger than your, even your German Shepherd, um, which is a big dog. I had a 110 so, pound German Shepherd. A um, distinction. They're very tall. Yes. So there's other dog breed, a dog breeds that might outweigh them, sure. but they're one of the tallest the tall, canines tall. out there. So but not yeah. quite great Dane tall, but they're yeah, they're they're, tall. they're they're tall. Long legs. Yeah. Great calves. Yeah. Good. Well turned calves. Um, <laughs> I, don't, I don't even know what that means, and I threw it out there. Yeah. Well, yeah. you're you're talking to us last night. So anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so anyways. Oh uh, yeah, so four wolves show up, um, and, and there's more wolves surrounding them. And Perrin sees all the eyes and, and and feels them all out there. And uh, he reaches for his axe, and Elias immediately says, "I wouldn't do that." Um, <laughs> and you could, um, you know, and 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 Perrin moves his hand away, and Perrin feels the tension ease. Um, um, so, <clears throat> yeah, I love it. It's his parent. His parents saw. He had the feeling that all the wolves, those in the trees as well, were staring at him. It made his skin itch. Cautiously, he moved his hands away from the axe. He imagined he could feel the tension ease amongst the wolves. Slowly, he sat back down. His hands shook until he gripped his knees to stop them. Egwene was also so stiff she almost quivered. One wolf, close to black with a light gray patch on his face, lay nearly touching her. I love the description that Jordan gives regarding Heron's feelings and emotions. Um, he could have just as easily said, okay, he put the ax down. He felt uncomfortable. He gripped his knees and done. But no, that wasn't what we got. We got this very vivid imagery about feelings, his skin itching, his mind easing, tension in the wolves easing. So it was almost like a conversation of feelings. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so um, and you know, Egwene immediately asks, you know, as the as the tension kind of goes down and calms, you know, Egwene asks Elias, you know, are are they tame? Are they your pets? And once again, Elias kind of scoffs at that, saying, you know, like, no, they're my friends. Uh, you, you can't tame a wolf. Uh, that's they're not they're not pets. They're, they're and, and we find out more about that in a bit, uh, in a bit. But um, uh, and then he names them. Um, uh, you know, says, well, that's someone's Dapple. Um, and then he starts to explain how talking to him kind of works. And I love, I really do love the way that Robert Jordan does this. And, I, and, and this is one thing that I think a lot of fandoms are talking about is how we're going to get this in the TV show, because it's not like a talking animal, like Dr. Doolittle or something like stupid like that. It's a very, very interesting way of how they communicate. And I, I just love it. And it makes you think of how animals would communicate almost. But. Yeah. So two things. One, I might get burned on this. But the moment Elias said, all right, my friends are coming now, and then the wolves showed up, he became, um, I won't say my favorite character so far, but most trusted of the people that they've run into. And this is where we bring in our own bias. Um, People that do well with animals, I generally trust a little bit more, but especially canines. Uh, And especially wolves, I mean, they're the wildest of them, right? So someone that has that sort of connection to be able to communicate with them and that there is a trust and they're part of the pack, like, boom, you know, I put them up on that level. Um, And then 
Jesus, the rum's kicking in. What was your question? I had a second part. We well, were talking about the, the, mind, the mind meld or the way oh. that people communicate. Yeah. So uh, maybe it kind of ruined it for me knowing that the, the series is coming out on Amazon. But sometimes I read a scene and if it's, a, if it's significant enough or it hits me in the right way, I try to think like, how would they portray this? And I don't want to have something cheesy where like, one wolf looks across to him and winks and he goes, Oh yeah. <laughs> you know, like that. now cats do this sometimes too, but dogs they'll come up and they'll kind of like burrow the, their head in you or sometimes they'll just do the forehead to yeah. forehead thing, but some sort of, even from a distance kind of like a respectful nod thing. And it's like message sent message received. So that's how I'm playing it in my mind. And hopefully it's something to that effect. Sure. Right? Yeah. Um, and, you know, Elias does explain like how that, you know, he sees emotions and they give each other, you know, emotions and, and he tries to explain Dapple's name as well, that it's not just like, it's not Dapple, it's not that. And then he starts explaining what her name is, but he says, but that doesn't even really fit it either. It's just, you you feel it. You can't even talk, say what it is, um, yeah. which is kind of cool. Um, I find it really cool. And then, you know, one of the, and then Gwen immediately says, well, can you teach us how to talk to them? Uh, and Elias like, no, it's something that can't be taught. Um, you know, the wolves found the wolves find you. We don't find the wolves. Um, I think actually before Gwen asked that, he said the wolves found him. That they used to hunt with men. Um, uh, and it's ancient history, and Gwen's you know Gwen's never heard of that before. I literally started thinking Pocahontas. I know that's really bad. Like I'm a big <laughs> Disney fan too. For y'all that don't know, like I'm like um, again six foot six, three hundred and thirty pounds mixed guy but i have like the heart of a, an old slash young white woman <laughs> <laughs> and I, I was like have you ever heard the wolf cry all i could think was colors Perfect. of the wind <laughs> Perfect. uh but you know there's that whole like just that in touch with nature feeling that you get it says uh, it's something that means the way shadows play on a forest pool at a midwinter dawn with the breeze rippling the surface and the tang of the ice when the water touches the tongue and a hint of snow before nightfall in the air. Like we live on the James and we get that imagery. We don't get so much of the snow. We get that every now and then when I was younger, we saw more snow, but we definitely know what, those images look like how they feel it's a perfect way of describing a, a very playful very cool very calm um melodious animal mm-hmm. yeah 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 pretty cool yeah and um you know they said that wolves used to hunt with men a long time ago it's an ancient history and the wolves remember but people don't anymore that this this goes way way back and that's when Egwene asks, can you teach us how to talk to them? And he says, no, I can't teach you. It's something that you're born with. But he can talk to wolves, uh, uh, pointing to um, pointing to, to Perrin. So while we give Ian time to remember his point, um, I really do think it's, it's awesome to really take a look at the way Elias explains himself. He really comes off as that loner type individual. Um, and we always have a lone wolf character in most of our um, our stories. So he really is that individual. And he said, I suppose I thought so too in regards to what people thought about him. They thought he was touched by the dark one because 
there was a, a moment where they were trying to understand where his power, his ability to communicate with wolves came from. But he said, most decent folks began to avoid me, and the ones who sought me out weren't the kind I wanted to know one way or the, another. Then I noticed there were times when the wolves seemed to know what I was thinking, to respond to what was in my head. That was the real beginning. They were curious about me. Wolves can sense people usually, but not like this. They were glad to find me. They say it's been a long time since they hunted with men. And when they say a long time, the feeling I get is like a cold wind howling all the way down from the first day. Like we have really muddied down the blood of the wolf to create the common dog, but there's still that feeling. Sorry. Like a pug. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> like a pug. Or I had a multi poo. I love yeah. that multi poo. He was all of ten pounds, and he was the f- most ferocious beast as long as he was on my shoulder, in my arms, or sitting behind my head. Um, and if you ever find me on Facebook, there are plenty of pictures of that. Um, but there was this understanding between me and this multi poo. I never had to speak to the dog. He knew my routine. He knew what was going on. He knew when there was trouble. He knew when things were great. Like you didn't have to have the conversation with the dog. Everything just made sense. Um, And though we've kind of gotten away from the original wolves and, and hunting as part of the pack, because that's essentially what we did to survive was we expanded the human pack to include the wolves um, and the wolves expanded their pack to include us. So I really do think it's really cool, this imagery of, you know, the forgotten feeling. And for those of you posting pictures of cats, don't do that. Oh, okay. <laughs> Chris looked over to uh, to the spoiler section real fast. He can't read the words, but he saw the pictures of the cats. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's all they're doing right now. They're not even talking about our episode anymore. They're just like cats. <laughs> they're, trying, they're trying to distract you. Yeah. Like, oh, cats. Uh, so, yeah. So, um I need to quit, put, put this away then. Um, so, <laughs> so, Ian, you're going to make a point. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know if it'd be good. Uh, too much rum. But so they talk about the history of the wolves and how they remember their history, and it just goes so far back. Like, and in in my mind's eye, it's like going back uh, to uh, the earliest of times, right? And if they have these connections with certain men or women or people. It's not really something that is, uh, well, I guess it doesn't specify, but as I'm reading it, I don't think it's something that's derived from the power. This is just like a, a natural bond and nature connection, but it's a power in and of itself. So I think that's unique, and I marked it and put a note next to that when we're talking about the history and how they connect with certain people, because we know that every other man, male, that taps into one true power, there's this taint that can cause problems but now we have this character, one of our um, air quoting guys, uh, heroes, that has a gift, has a power, could expand on that. And perhaps he can use that and there's no taint involved because that connection goes way back before there was ever that taint made to the one true power. If sure. that makes sense. So, so for the first time, Ian's again, blown my mind. So Ian needs to drink more rum before talking. Yeah. We have hyper-focused so much on the one power that we've kind of made it the one power. But there could be more than one power. Yeah. Like the tank in and of itself could be its own power trying to dominate the one power. Sure. And then we've got this ancient feeling and then the manipulation of wolves. And then we have a man whose eyes are that of a wolf. Like, 
again, I that connection to yeah. nature. And I'm a little biased because of my studies of tribal religions and religious studies. I did that in college and everything like those are that's kind of like the beginning of your uh, uh, mythology and uh, discussion of gods or gods or whatnot. It comes from that connection to nature, you know, so that that kind of predates everything. Sure. And then moving from there, we have this whole idea because I'm going to let you guys marinate on what Ian said, <laughs> that Elias really is a madman. And then he asked, you know, you said you're going to Camelot, but that still does not explain what you're doing out here from or days from anywhere. Mm-hmm. So then we have the story that Karen and Egwene put together, which, you know, we really dogged some of our other characters earlier about their lying, about their half-telling of tales. Yeah. But now we've got literally every character at this point who has done it and accepted it and rolled with it. And she's like, we're from the north, from Saladea, from farms outside a tiny village. Neither of them had been more than 20 miles from home in their whole lives before this. But they had heard the Gleeman story and the merchant's tales, and they wanted to see some of the world. Camlin and Ilion, the Sea of Storms, and maybe even the Fable Isles of the Sea Folk. So here we have Truth Weave, and we know that's what the wheel does, into fiction. And so we, there's just this idea that everybody here has realized that they've got to stretch the truth a little bit. So I'm going to have to cut Moraine a little bit of slack, and I'm going to um, definitely take a step back and remember that at this point everybody's human and everybody's looking to survive um but i think what's even funnier was the quite a story yes quite a story there's a few things wrong with it but the main thing is daffle says is all a lump of lies every last word (laughs) cool story but you're full of shit (laughs) so all right is anybody else questioning moraine again I mean, I know she has nothing to do with any of the chapters we're reading tonight, but <laughs> evidence that Moraine was full of shit and that Egwene is not going to be a nice to die because apparently her life suck in the wolf scene right <laughs> <through it. laughs> Yeah, so at this point, yeah, they, they, you know, Elias is like, okay, all that's crap. Uh, the wolves are ready to be done with them. Like, uh, Burn, who's one of the wolves, um, you know, is it, literally just like, let's go and just eat them. Um, you know, that's what he's thinking, you know, and, uh, and, and Perrin, Perrin actually goes for his axe. Um, and all the wolves rise up at once and you hear the wolves start to howl around them. They realize they're, they're surrounded by, by wolves. Yeah. I wish I could get my dog to howl right now, but, uh, so, <laughs> but yeah, right. they're, they're surrounded by, by wolves. Um, and, um, you know, uh, parents says, all right, all right, all right. I'll, I'll, I'll tell you the real story. Um, and I, before parent goes into that, you know, Elias says, you know, I, you know, I heard all this stuff, but I want to know about the Trollocs and Halfman you ran into. <laughs> you know, the, the wolves can smell that on you. So, right. Um, yeah. Oh, I also think it's really awesome the realization that uh, Perrin has had. He's like, his eyes, his yellow wolf eyes, blink no more than theirs did. They are a wolf's eyes, thought Perrin, or Perrin thought. Like, when does Perrin get his wolf eyes? Yeah. Like now that's become my thing. Like I want Perrin to. I, I can hear bullseyes. Yeah. Anyway. Okay. It's, a, it's a good prediction. So Perrin will become a wolf man. By what, which book? Wolf brother. 
It's got to be early on. We got to say six for this one because he's got to be a leader by fourteen. Six. You're calling six early. I'm calling six now because he's going to be a leader by fourteen. He's right. dead so by, 20, by the end of fourteen. In 2023, we're going to see Perrin's yellow eyes. <laughs> yes. All right. Uh, and then we get into the actual story, and yeah. you know Elias is amused. They said. He said, now that's something to consider. I don't hold with Aes Sedai, the red Aja, is that how you pronounce it? Yeah, Aja. Those that, like coming from men, are messing with the one power. They wanted to gentle me once. I told them to their faces they were black Aja. Serve the dark one, I said. They didn't like that at all. They couldn't catch me, though. Once I got into the forest, but they did try. Yes, they did. Come to that. I doubt any Aes Sedai would take kindly to me after that. I had to kill a couple of warders. Bad business that killing warders don't like it. Mm-hmm. So we see he's struggled a lot with what he's done, but he has to do what he has to do to survive, which is interesting. And I'm going to actually back us up just one second. For the first time ever, we're actually 12 <laughs> episodes in, and actually Alan's going to back us up because we skipped over a great line that I love, where is where Elias says, I don't like killing people like that. Um, yeah, right. He's, he's considering the waste of the rabbit meat. He's like, "Daggone it! I let you eat it. I let you eat it, and now we're gonna kill you." Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. So um, well done. Well yeah. Done. So, Very important. We, do, we skipped over that line. I love that line. Uh, yeah. So, but yeah. So we get to the whole story about the Aes Sedai. Of course, Elias has run into them before. Um, you know, they thought it had something to do with the power. He says it's nothing to do with the power. It's older than that. Um, and, and you get into that right there. Um, and yeah, it's it older than an eyes to die, older than anybody using the one power, old as humankind, old as wolves. They don't like that either, eyes to die. Old things coming again. I'm not the only one. There are other things, other folk. Make an eyes to die nervous, make them mutter about ancient barriers weakening. That's a very important This little ancient. tidbit here, I highlighted that all because, first off, it predates humankind to the one power. As if the one power wasn't always there, but it was discovered. Mm-hmm. So then it brings the question, was there a power before the one power? Um, and then is the one power really only just the one power or is there other? Um, and then this idea of the Aes Sedai not liking old things coming again as if they are in against the turning of time. Mm-hmm. Like maybe they... Or anything that threatens their power. Not to interrupt your train of thought, but I feel you on that. I was kind of... Yeah, like maybe the dark one's not so dark. Maybe you have this power struggle between the dark one who wants time to turn. And, of course, you still have the dragon reborn, which is kind of like the in-between guy who's trying to just do right by everyone. And then you've got the Aes Sedai on the other end who may be part of a larger group that's trying to keep the world going forward rather than repeating itself. So I know y'all can't see us, but I'm throwing my hands up in the air and shrugging because <laughs> I, I feel everything he's saying, but meh, I don't know. <laughs> and the ancient barrier barrier is weakening. Maybe we're getting our first clue that like yes. the dark one is sure. on his way. Yeah. Maybe. Um <laughs> so um, at this point, there's to go back to Perrin talking about him having these wolf powers. and He's denying all of it, even though these signs are starting to pop up left and right. I mean, he's starting to realize them as he's thinking about it. 
Um, you know, uh, you know, I think he looks over and says, you know, that one's named whatever. And he's like, how do I know his name that? Like, I, I shouldn't be knowing these things. Like, you know, and he's like, he's, he's like, he's, is he just messing with me and making me think this is just all in my head? Um, and this part is very tough for me to relate to because I don't care where I am, what time of day it is. It, it, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter anything. If I walk up to somebody and they whisper to me, you have the power of the wolf, I would go fucking teach me. Like I would, I would argue with them. I would just roll with it and see what happens. But he's, yeah, for he whatever was. reason, he's fighting it a little bit. Like yeah. that's that's the one power I'd be like. Well, you know, with. I think he's also terrified of anything that like that's that you know they've been grown up in a village he's like terrified of anything. Of, yeah, of anything. Yeah. Uh, but Stop you know the, the, the power. Um, you know, like I mean, they they know yes. about the power. They don't know about this and anything that's like that. They've grown they've grown up to fear. Right, so it's right. true. Yeah, he he's just. You know, I think you know Eliza's telling him has nothing to do with the one power, but if he can do it, does it is it the one power and he's gonna go crazy now, you know, and like so he's I, I think there's you could one power with wolves yeah, 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 yeah. seed because it says he had to be uh making some crazy joke. I can't talk to wolves. One of the wolves, Hopper, he thought, looked at him and seemingly grinned. He yeah. grinned. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> there's your cheesy moment. He <laughs> wondered how he put it. Oh, so um uh the lias you know offers you know here's another idea you can just join us join the pack um you know and, it's, and he actually says the wolves want you to join uh and Perrin keeps on coming back i can't talk to wolves i don't know why they want me to join um and Egwene just kind of cuts in here and is like no we're going to Camelin and Aaron gets really upset. Like, this is like internal monologue. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm glad we all worked this out together. So, <laughs> this is this is how you kind of come to a decision as a team. Yeah. yeah. Sounds like an old married couple. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> he, he blessed her heart about three times with a nudge and a wink. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, uh, you know, the, the Wolves offers, well, if you're going to go to Camelin, um, head that way, the Wolves offer to go with them. And this is also where you find out that uh, Dapple's in charge. And, he kind of says, "Well, thank you, Elias, because don't thank me. Dapple's the one said we're going. She's the one in charge. She's the head of the whole entire pack, um, you know." So it, it, it goes back to even when I first read this, I remember like up until this point, you know, I thought, "Okay, they're all, you know, Elias is obviously the alpha because he's a human, and no, he's just one of the pack members. Like he's part of this pack, like yeah, just like a wolf. But he answers. He's, he's not the head uh, at all. Uh, nope. It's very evident." Um, right. And probably Dapple was the one who was probably watching all of them and probably sent Elias to go talk to them. He says, I know that one can talk to us. You, you go approach her first. You know, right. like, he's, so I mean, this is probably, yeah, right? exactly. That's about it. Yeah. So That's pretty great. cool um, there. And um, we end this chapter with Burn taking off running to go hunt Trollocs. Um, and, and Perrin can actually feel the wolves. Yeah, he said, I, I can feel Burn leaving. And the scarred male was not the only one. A dozen others, all young males, locked after him. He wanted to believe it was all Elias playing on his imagination, but he could not. Just before the departing wolves faded from his mind, he felt a thought he knew came from Burn, a sharp and clear as if it were his own thought. Hatred. Hatred and the taste of blood. Mm. Yep. Can't make that up. All right. So, anything we left out? Uh, it's a big chapter. A lot of this is a lot of development. So, you know, we, I, I told you we're kind of done with world building. We're never done with world building when you have to deal with Robert Jordan. <laughs> but uh, so, we're developing a lot right now. Obviously, we're developing a lot into Perrin's character. Um, you know, we're developing a lot into this new concept of a type of power or something. You know, so there's some connection. Yeah. yeah. Um, 
And I, I love it. I think it was earlier you had mentioned, or one of you guys had mentioned that. Well, we talked about that in a previous episode. I can't remember what the context was. But there was a previous episode where you guys talked about wolves. We talked about direwolves way back when. Yeah. I'll go back and listen to some of our episodes and, and try to remember yeah. what, what the context was. But I, I kind of got shut when you guys brought it up. Well, now. we also talked about it a little bit when we were looking at that new map a few chapters back. Oh, we were, uh, you mentioned a hound. When they're going, the when they're go, when they're on the way to Barrelon, and they're saying that 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 the, tro- the, the wolves are around the trolls. Yeah, so we yeah. knew that. Somebody needed to adopt some wolves. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and that's what we mentioned. Maybe they're like wars. I got smacked because I put Game of Thrones coming out before this book. No, um, yeah, yeah. Walk yeah. before God. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, um, yeah. Walk before God. Yeah. Um, anyway, so we're gonna wrap this chapter up. All right, moving on to chapter twenty-four. Flight down the Arenel. Um, start of the new symbol. Or that's not a new symbol. Uh, the second time we've seen the symbol. It's a heart. The first time we saw it was the chapter called the Glee Man. So um, I think it's no surprise what the heart stands for. Um, we're going to have a lot of Tom in this chapter. Um, at least he's the only Gleeman we know. Um, I, I assume in this world there's only one. It, it can, there can only be one. Well, uh, we need to air quotes. In this chapter, it's Gleeman. Okay. But air quotes to the wink. Sure. Okay. Good yeah. point. But we're not starting there. So things are really weird as soon as we started out, which I think I mentioned this before. Like this is our third sequence i think yeah, yeah. so you know i told you guys before if you're ever reading along and you have no idea what the hell's going on you're probably in a dream <laughs> and this is exactly the way robert jordan does this like where you read it just has no context it makes no sense and then you're about half a paragraph in you have to start over because you realize that like oh okay yeah yeah i get, I get okay we're dreaming um so yeah um this one was a bit of a tease because i'm thinking to myself well maybe they're passing some sort of thing along the river and he's just looking off the boat and then then it got too trippy and i was like no 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 yeah, <laughs> I was back, and then i went back to the beginning and i was like let's start this in <laughs> in my mind like yeah. i thought the same thing i was like god water dripping like is the boat having issues are they like in the hole are they like sleeping and he's like yeah. like those are the thoughts that entered my mind so we were kind of both on the same yeah. same thought process there sure. um before we get into the chapter i've got to say now that we're on the third dream sequence Jordan's mind was either really brilliant or really messed up. And I'm not <laughs> sure yet. Like, I don't know how you could have so and I said the same thing when I was reading Martin. Of course, I read Martin first and still continue to read the asshole, even though he had put a book out of forever, and I hope he's listening. <laughs> but, George George R. R. Martin definitely listens to our podcast. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I know he does. <laughs> like he's just waiting for every episode. Shout out to <laughs> but, definitely. Like, everyone does. Uh, your mind has to be going all the time to write stuff like this. Like you don't just come up with this. It has to be a part of your being like it's a schizophrenic or something. Yeah. Anyway, water dripped in the distance, hollow splash echoing and re-echoing, losing their source forever. There was stone bridges and railless ramps everywhere, all sprouting off from broad flat top stone spires, all polished and smooth and streaking with red and gold. Level on level, the maze stretched up and down through the murk without any apparent beginning or end. I just wanted to read that just because the level of imagery there, like the first sentence, I was right there with Ian, like, okay, something's going on with the boat. They're passing something interesting. And as I read more, I'm like, I come back to that image of that, um, like the stairs that go everywhere and you can't quite find the beginning or the end. MC Escher. 
Yeah, 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 yeah. exactly. Uh, and the, 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 the artist that does all the crazy, like the waterfall that comes around round and the, the illusion paintings or sketches. That's the stairways. Yeah, and so I only made it to the, the next paragraph when I had to do the reset when I was like, wait, this is the dream. And I was clued in. Uh, he writes, he knew the illusion. He'd followed it too many times not to know. And I'm like, okay, this isn't a simple trip down the river. And in the other dream sequences he's had, there's been references to a familiarity, familiar bit, familiar, familiar. Darkest story, so something was similar. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, uh, someone will someone will type in later on Discord what that word was. I was trying to find. <laughs> yeah. So in all of his dream sequences, there there's something that he recognizes as <laughs> already knowing <laughs> sure yeah so exactly. so you know describe this place do you guys think this is a real place like or is this just because we talked about this in previous dream sequences like you had the white tower in one and then i think the next one they're in that dark dungeon looking type place you know and and then another one right there on a mountain you know and over a cliff and there's like all these different different images and and we talked about the white tower is real and we talked about last time do you think this is a real place with the crazy steer, stairs and everything like that? Is that is that a real place? Or uh, I think so, and I said this before. I, I'm still not certain if it's his ability to look into the future through these dreams, um, or maybe it's something of the past or a distant past, or maybe um, it's something that all of the the dragons reborn or the false dragons or whatever that they all sort of experience time and time again. And he's just the next one in the line, like the next Neo experience in it. I don't know if it's a past, a present, a future, but it, I believe it to be real. All so right. Since time means nothing, I'm going to jump forward and then go back <laughs> to make the point that I want to make. There was only one face in those endless mirrors, his own face, Balzaman's face, one face. As he looked in the mirror, Rand, he, Rand, let's get our pronouns lined up. Rand. Rand looks into the mirror. But, again, I'm going to read the sentence to you. There is only one face in those endless mirrors, his own face, Balsamon's face. But it was Rand who was having the thoughts. So, is this a real place? I think we're looking at the Dark One's enclosure where he's been captured. Huh. Ooh. Oh. I think this is his endless prison because with a force like this, you can't end him. You can't kill him. You imprison him. And it's going to be a prison of his own making in the sense that, again, it was an illusion, an illusion that he's been through numerous times. Hmm. Um, so I think that's what it is, is his prison. And it really got to me the fact that this was familiar to Rand, but maybe it's not familiar to Rand. He knew the illusion. He had followed it too many times not to know however far he went, up or down or in any direction. There was only the shiny stone, stone, but the darkness of deep, fresh-turned earth permeated the air, and the sickly sweetness of decay, the smell of a grave opened out of its time. He tried not to breathe, but the smell filled his nostrils. It clung to his skin like oil. It never specified 
the he. The only time that it specified a he was in the very beginning. Whatever direction Rand looked as far as his eyes could mm-hmm. make out in the dimness of the same. Like it in that paragraph, which is a separate paragraph, they never stated that the he that was talking was Rand. Or that they were not one and the same. Or that Rand wasn't actually in the mind yes. of the Dark One and the Dark One was in his mind. Maybe the thing about the Dark One is that, and I have to give my Harry Potter references, that I know this came before Harry Potter, but I think about Voldemort and splitting his soul into seven pieces. Spoiler alert, if you yeah. haven't read Harry Potter, you're a loser anyway. Yeah, <laughs> Adam. But, you know, I, I go back to this concept <laughs> of maybe the, these are Bialzaman's nightmares and Rand and the boys are getting a glimpse into it. And he is trying Whoa. to extract himself from his own torture. And the only way he can do it is by bringing himself out of one of these boys. Maybe they are the keys to his freedom. And, you know, maybe it's men that can tap into the one power without being corrupted by the taint that can be utilized as a key. Which is rare, rare, as far as we know. Yeah. 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 Mm. So that's yeah. how where my mind like sure. All right. So so as he's over there tripping out, I'm listening and I know I wish we had video going so you could see my expressions because I'm losing my mind over here uh listening to him. I, uh, sounds like a random question, but do we know is there any anything on the dark web about Martin? Was he a Star Wars or Lucas fan? Jordan? Jordan. Yeah, Jordan, yeah, yeah. Um, Star Wars fan. Uh, I'm not sure if he was Star Wars, but there there is, is there some influence. I mean, I, be... There has to be some. I mean, mm-hmm. his book was written in 1990. Obviously, it's after the, the first trilogy came out. Right. Um, um, he started working in the 80s, and it was kind of a side project of his. Um, so he actually started writing this in the early 80s. He didn't release the first book until 1990. Um, but that would have been during the peak of Star Wars. Yeah. So I mean, it, it would definitely have been everywhere. Um, All right. So Rand looks in the mirror, and he doesn't see Rand. He sees. So, Rand, who we thought was supposed to be the savior, actually becomes the lead bad guy because he won't give up on Egwene, so he loses his legs. And yeah. then, okay. and then yeah, he turns yeah, to Dark Side. In Volcano Fire. And, right. Um, I've got the high ground. <laughs> <laughs> well, those, those movies came out after. So the original trilogy, yeah. But time is meaningless. So, yeah. No, uh, point is, you, you blew my mind. And sure. I'm feeling you. Wow. And he's also right at the same time that the Dungeon and Dragon novels were really becoming popular. And a lot of these same themes or ideologies show part in like the uh, Margaret Weiss and Tracy Hickman series, and they've written probably 40 books together. Yeah. Um, and they still continue to write books. So, like, not to his extent. He's definitely gone into a lot further detail than they ever did when it comes to character development and develop, development of lands. But this dream sequence kind of pulled me into that. And then it also was like that that thought, you know, as he turned away from moving forward. Sorry, guys. Turning away from Bialzman's distant form, he could not help but wonder about Matt. Was Matt somewhere in the maze? Or are there two mazes, two Bialzmans? His mind skidded away from that. It was too dreadful to dwell on. Is this like Barlon? Then why can't he find me? Yeah. 
There was a little better, a small comfort, comfort, blood and ash. Where's the comfort in it? So, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, as, as Ruth has seen, you, you mentioned that they're in the maze now. So it started out with this crazy stare and then all of a sudden they're in a hedge maze. And I don't, have you ever ran through a hedge maze before? Like an actual hedge maze? I've never yeah. done it fully clothed. I've never done it completely sober. <laughs> <laughs> so Ian and I know about the same hedge maze. So yeah. uh, in Williamsburg, Virginia, which is a really, really nice um, uh, town close to where we live, um, they have this place called Colonial Williamsburg. Oh, which, maze, yeah, yeah. So, um, so yeah. So behind the governor's mansion, so Williamsburg used to be the capital of Virginia in colonial times, um, and they have the governor's mansion there. In the back of the gardens, they actually have a full size hedge grove mage, um, six foot hedges, or actually, yeah, it's ten foot hedges. It's Can't pretty big it. now. It's pretty big. Um, and I, I never paid money and actually went into the governor's mansion and actually went there during the day, but it's kind of like a rite of passage in our area. At least uh, if you go to William Mary to, uh, what's the college there? Um, where Thomas Jefferson went to college too. So it's a pretty famous college. If you don't know William and Mary, you're a loser. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, Ian, Ian graduates from William Mary, but uh, oh, yeah. anyway, so, um, so, um, one of the rite of passages, I guess, in, uh, to, to, to be there is to break into the gardens of the governor's mansion at nighttime. Uh, jump the wall and then go run through the maze at night. Um, preferably naked. Uh, but <laughs> say, to be fair, there's three parts. You're supposed to streak the sunken gardens, which right. is very long, uh, too long for the average person to run. So inevitably, you walk it naked. Uh, you have to swim in the Crim Dell, and then you have to break into the governor's palace at night and do the maze. But those of us that are awesome, we do all three completely naked at the same time, and, and it's a couple run. miles apart. So you're just strolling around, just running around Williamsburg, and tourists are walking around. Right. And also, yeah. you see naked college students run by, yeah. streaking. So, so it's a lot of fun. Right. Um, um, and I coached the William Mary sailing team, so that's also a connection we, there as yeah, well. We, so we, had was, break, we had a break. I was band. up there as well, yeah. a lot. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, Hedgecrow's Maze. Been through that plenty of times. This one didn't have thorns though. So, but um, you know, uh, I think at one point Rand reaches out and touches the, the thorn, it pricks his finger. And kind of stumbles back and kicks over one of the stones and realizes it's skulls everywhere, you know. And at this point, he's just running from Baltimore and he's um, kind of lost in the maze. And and the reason I brought that story up is because if you ever been to one of the mazes, it's really easy to actually get lost in them. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it's it, it. You know, you think about it, it might be just logical. I don't. Know, it, I knew my way because I took enough. You know, whenever you date a new girl, that was like the first thing we'd always do is like, hey, you want to go break into the mayor's mansion and go run through the maze? Uh, yeah. <laughs> that was kind of like one of the yeah. things that was like a staple. By you the bring, time we brought that out, the first we had it memorized. Yeah, so, we had the yeah. whole memorized. But the first time, it's like, uh, oh, wait, yeah. wait, wait yeah. Yeah. where am I? So the first time's tough. But um, but yeah, so um, uh, yeah, definitely uh, uh, there's a freaky incident here where he pricks his thorn or pricks, pricks his finger on a thorn and that skull, you know, all the pathway skulls. Uh, just turned over. Um, and then he runs into Baltimore, um, and I think they're both surprised. You know, they weren't expecting actually to find each other. I think that they mentioned that he's just a surprise. But then he starts, you know, talking to Rand, saying that uh, a couple of things, you know, mention the eye of the world again. You know, this is the eye of, eye of the world will never serve you. Um, and then, uh, you know, Rand kind of lashes out and says, this is a dream. And that kind of just breaks yeah. everything. He said, how long do you think you can evade me, boy? How long yeah. do you think you can evade your fate forever? You are mine. Stumbling backward, Rand wondered why he was fumbling at his belt as if he had a sword. Light help me, he muttered. Light help me. He said, the light will not help you, boy. And the eye of the world will not serve you. So it seems like they're two distinct powers. You are my hound. 
and if you will not course at my command, I will strangle you with the corpse of the great serpent. So it makes me wonder, like you are my hound, how are the um, fades created? And could we, we, have, we haven't got into that yet, have we? No. Okay, cool. Mm. I don't feel like we have. So I, 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 Maybe. Oh, wait, he's confused. More, <laughs> more run to Alan. He's giving us some spoilers. I'm no, 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 Maybe their idea, maybe their their job is to serve him, maybe not as a host, but as newer fades or newer. That, but that's what he thinks. That's what he wants to make them, perhaps. You're right. But, but it was that idea that he was both surprised and angry about seeing him. Then, of course, we get into the whole air shimmering and his features blurred and faded, which I thought was really interesting. Yeah. Little blur and shimmering, huh? Yeah. yeah. I've never heard of that. But then, yeah, and then he's somewhere else. Um, but then he's been not that mirror room. Sure. Uh-huh. Yeah. And, so, yeah. That was really, that was just, it was interesting that that was the way he escaped Bialzamar. Um, and it just makes me think like, what's the power that he has? He's got, Rand's got to have a power of some sort. What is it? What's he drawing on? And, so the way the way he describes the eye of the world and says the eye of the world will not serve you, it it almost seems like he I don't know if it's a jealousy thing or maybe he thinks they're in competition to get control of the eye of the world. So whatever the eye of the world is, maybe Beelzebub is also after control of it, uh, but hasn't been able to get it yet, and now sees Rand as a threat, well, he and lost and is. Or, or maybe lost it trying to get it back. But either either way, I feel like he sees Rand as a threat. But that's when we come all control. the way back to that sentence. There's only one face in the endless mirror. His own face. Beelzebub's face. One face. Son of a, son yeah. of a gun. Yeah. So that's the next scene. Yeah, they get to that mirror room or whatever. There's thousands of images of Beelzebub. And then, you know, Rand and him start to merge together to one. Yeah. Just one face. And then he, he wakes up. So yeah, um, kind of kind of freaky into a dream, you know. And then when he wakes up, he, he really takes a while to realize he's on the boat. Um, you know, he kind of comes to yeah. it, boats creaking, you know, like boats do. Water dripping, it could yeah. start the same way as the dream. Exactly. Where am I? Um, but then one thing he notices right away is his fingers actually bleeding. Um, you know, we go back to the, you know, the previous time when the rats had their bats broken, that happened in the real world too. You know, he breaks his finger on the thorn, and he comes out to the real world, real world world. And his finger's actually bleeding. So I'll just freak you guys out. But All right. So Moraine's talking about how the females can tap into the one true power. And then slowly but surely, like the reaction gets closer to when they tap into it to eventually it's like the moment they tap into it, they have their, their reaction to it and it's not trained properly. Right. So maybe the same is happening with Rand here and tapping into his power and slowly but surely it's creeping close together. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Could be. So, yeah. So, um, 
So yeah. then we're on the spray. They're on the spray. We're on the boat, uh, the spray. It's making its way down the river. Um, and they're worried about running aground. Um, so they have a guy out front that's dropping. Uh, and it, it explains what he's doing. And if, if you've never been on a boat that has a depth finder. So modern boats have depth finders. It's like a little sonar device you put on the bottom. And it actually reads out on the instrument panel, you know, how deep it is. Boats that me and Ian used to buy, uh, we were really poor college kids, did not have depth found finders on them. So we actually did use this method. Um, it's you get a piece of rope and you tie knots on it. So you have equal, you know, every couple of feet. So, you know, like three feet a, a yard. So we know how many yards deep it is. And then we tie like a heavy lead weight to the, like a monkey's fist at the one end of the line. And you go on the bow and you drop it off and then you see how many knots went down the water before it stops dropping. You pull it back up and know how deep the water is. Yeah. So, I mean, this is literally how they used to do it back in the day. And and, and we've done this before. Um, and I'm going to tell you a little joke, and it's a true story. Um, if you're in the sailing world, there are only two types of sailors that have never run aground. Um, yeah, Ian's, Ian's not in his head right now. So uh, it, it's a saying we have in the sailing world. There are two types of sailors that you'll meet that, that have never run aground. Um, and one – they never leave the harbor. Um, they, they actually don't really sail. And the second kind are damn liars. So, uh, so damn, damn liars. Damn liars. Uh, if you sail on a sailboat, you, you, you run aground, no matter how good of a sailor you are. Um, channels shift. I mean, you can be in the middle of a channel markers and think you're in the middle of the channel and it's supposed to be like 20, 30 feet deep and, and your boat draws 10 feet. So you have 10 feet below you. And you'll run right aground because the channel shifted. So I mean, it's you, you hit right around all the time. Uh, <laughs> right, right now, if you travel down the intercoastal on the East Coast, uh, especially in South Carolina and Georgia at low tide, you will see channel markers about 10 to 20 feet up on the beach. No water. So can't trust them. You, know, you can do it at salt ponds. Um, well, salt, yeah, for sure. They shift all the time. <laughs> in Hampton, yeah. I, I found that the, out the hard way. <laughs> I'm not the avid sailor, but I've been on the boat in a little area called Pocosin, Virginia. Which literally yeah, is home to like yeah. 500 people. Yeah. And one of the guys I was with said, oh, yes, I, I can I can sell a boat. I should have known by I can. Does that mean I have? He had never been on one before. He bought a boat and then decided he was going to sail it that day. And we were on a motorboat and we ran on a ground twice. Oh, yeah. 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 No, the, the scallop boats in Seaford, they run aground often in there. Sure. And they go in and out all the time. But anyways. Yeah. So another funny running to ground story. And I'm going to tell this one. They're going to move on. Because I love telling personal stories. So back to – I used to coach the William Mary sailing team. And I had a boat that was given to me from them. Um, it was a, a, a 27-foot Catalina. Um and I get the Deep Creek, which is a creek uh, that runs into the James River, uh, close to where uh, where we live. And um, and one some of the kids from the sailing team wanted to use the boat. And uh, one afternoon, and, and but James River is a tidal river, meaning that we have tides, high tide and low tide. The river does go up and down. So um, they called me and said, "Can we borrow the boat?" I said, "Sure, go ahead and take it out." You know, about an hour later, I get a phone call saying, "Hey, we just ran aground. What do we do?" <laughs> uh, coming out of the creek. Um, so I went immediately online, Googled the tide chart for the day, realized it's low tide. So if they ran aground, all they have to do is throw anchor out, wait a couple of hours, and the tide will rise up and pick the boat right off the ground, and they can continue on their way. So my next question to them was, well, how much beer do you got? And they're like, oh, we got a full cooler full. Um, I was like, well, you're good then. Just throw anchor off. Uh, <laughs> wait, wait a few hours. Uh, you're good to go. 
That's been that's been the answer to every run-around story I have. Yeah, and, yeah. you got a beard, just wait. Yeah. I, I won't waste time. We talked about other other sailing stories, but on the Discord, if y'all want to hear uh, more run-around stories, I have at least three or four more really good ones. Yeah. So, oh yeah. On. Okay, moving on. So, Bale's pushing the crew right here really hard. He's trying to get to the move faster. Um, um, you know, obviously, uh, to get away from the Trollocs. He thinks the Trollocs are chasing him. Uh, the crew's really getting restless about it. Uh, you can tell there's like memories, mutinies afoot um, on this boat. Uh, and Tom's kind of doing gleaming stuff. You know, he's telling tales and playing instruments. Um, and and we get a little bit more about Gelb. So it's a character from the from the couple chapters ago uh, that Rand stepped on. And uh, you can tell the crew doesn't really like Gelb at all because he's trying to blame everything on these three, Matt, Rand, and Tom. And and they're just not having it with Gelb, um, you know, because Gelb's kind of this lazy guy. and They just don't like him at all. But, um, um, you know, uh, and they're giving him all the bad jobs. Uh, I noted here that he had to crawl, crawl through the bilges. Um, so the bilge is the bottom of the boat. It's disgusting. It doesn't matter what boat you're on. It's disgusting. You learn, uh, <laughs> you learn to love the smell. I promise you. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, uh, talk a little bit about what's going on here. You know, Bale's pushing the crew. Um, it sounds like mutiny. Talk a little about Gelb. We can talk about all these things right now. Do you want to hit it first? Go for it. Uh, so a lot of this, uh, I'll be honest, I skimmed over really fast. And there's only one part of this entire chapter that I really locked in on. And when we get there, I'll, I'll mention it and get all excited. But I do know um, it doesn't matter the size of the boat. Uh, this one's, what, 80-some feet? 80-foot, yeah. 80-foot boat. Mm-hmm. So an 80-foot boat. I don't know if y'all been on a boat before, but that sounds massive, right? Uh, but you put 12 people on there or however many they have right now. And on day one, it's big. On day two, it's a little bit smaller. On day three, it's a little bit smaller. And it, and if you're on that, if you're on it for a week, that's not enough space for that many people. And I bring that up because they point out the issues they're having as far as personality. Okay. So we have our one guy, Gelb, that, mm-hmm. Nobody likes, but he's trying to find every opportunity he has to point blame at somebody else. So that's a problem. If you don't resolve that, the more time goes by on a boat like that, that's going to cause problems. But then you have Tom hinting at, uh, there's possible mutiny here. People aren't really a fan of the captain and decisions he's made. And that's a mutiny's a big effing deal. And it seems no matter what culture you're in and what universe you're in, in what side of the world you're in, mutiny on a boat is a big deal. If you're going to go, you got to go all out. So, like, Tom is like, look, if this happens, you need to understand uh, they're taking everybody out because I ain't going to be no witnesses. Like, it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's not worth risking sort of thing. So, my, I guess my reading and understanding knowledge and life in the maritime world, like, I know these whisperings, they are whisperings, but as time goes by, um, it's more and more significant. And also Jordan's a friend with Martin. So at some point where we think we know what their destination is going to be, there's going to be a brawl on the boat. The boat sinks. People swim to shore. Everybody's lost. Yeah. So who knows sure. what's going to happen, but you have to pay attention to these relationships on a boat for a long voyage. It becomes very tense. Sure. Well, I agree. And just relationships in general, I like the way you use that term because what we see here is Rand watching Tom watching everyone else. Yeah. And so 
again, that, that level of character development, Tom is really coming out to being a clearly observant individual who has a lot of life experience because he knew right away what the mutiny looked like. And he made sure that he kept his watching out of the eyes of those that were mutinous. But then he was also being watched and studied by Rand. So Rand is learning from Tom. Tom is learning and assessing the situation. Mm -hmm. And then they're both kind of coming together with this idea that we have got to keep people distracted so that in turn the distraction can keep them from mutinying long enough for us to get the heck off the boat. Yeah, yeah. So there's kind of like this unspoken play-by-play. I said Tom did his part in diverting the crew from thoughts of mutiny. He told stories with all the flourishes every morning and every night, and in between he played any song that was requested. He played his part, but he was paying attention. Yeah. To support the notion that Rand and Matt wanted to be apprentice gleeman, he set aside time each day for lessons, and that was an entertainment for the crew as well. He would not let um, let either of them touch his harp, of course, and their <laughs> sessions with the flute produced pain winces in the beginning, at least, and laughters from the crew even while they were covering their ears. So here's a man who is clearly a little bit more deceptive than we gave him props for. Um, we're learning that each character is pretty well-rounded and has to play different parts. Um, and he understands that his goal in mind right now is to keep the boat going so that he can get the heck off of there. Yeah. And then we have Gelb standing alone in the background, watching darkly, hating them all. So I'm like, I, my level of distrust for him is just increasing more and more. I'm wondering what stupid thing he's going to do, because I still think um, oh, is it Farron? Is that his name? No. Oh, Perrin? No. no, not Perrin. I'm no. mixing characters. What, what series? From, no, no, no. I'm, I'm thinking of uh, our character at the very beginning. Our the Peddler? Yeah, the Peddler. Fame. 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 Thank you. Pat and Fame. Fame. Yeah, yeah I'm mixing the speaking. So. <laughs> that's when we when, when we met him again. That's when we realized Alan was a dark friend. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So so, uh, so is Gil Pet and Fang. But the two characters are very similar. So he he puts in these sly, malicious type people, and I still feel like you know the sure. person that tipped off the white coats. Fame. Sure. True. So then here we're gonna have. Gelb getting in the way of something. He's going to screw sure, something yeah. up for our crew. So there's my prediction: is he is definitely going to screw the pooch here. It, it stinks because things aren't quite serious enough to immediately take action. Like if you meet a Gelb and you're in season five of The Walking Dead, you kill him. You just you don't even wait for him to screw things up for you. But it's like it's still season one, so you got to feel him out a little bit, you know. And that's yeah, you know he's going to ruin it for you. But sure, here we go. So yeah, so um, um, it moves on. They're sailing past all these old statues. I think it's the next scene. They're going down the river some more, and there's um, there's old carvings and statues, and wonders how long they've been there, considering how worn they are. And, and the crew doesn't even pay attention to them because obviously they've been by them a million times, but they're just amazed by them. But there's treasure. But there's oh yeah. So we're getting to that. So then they see this large metal tower, um, and, and Bell Doman comes out because they hear him ask, "What's that?" And, he kind of goes and like no one really knows what it is. It's this giant metal tower. It doesn't rust. It doesn't have a way into it. 
Um, and, you know, we, a lot of sales use it as a marker to show where they are. And, and Matt immediately goes, yeah, if they're, there's got to be treasure. There's got to be there. treasure in there. Why else? Uh, build why else I mean, would it be there? Uh, you know, so Matt's just thinking about treasure. So Matt's being a little weird here, you know. But um, obsessive. obviously, I'm obsessive about treasure. Um, and and Bill Dolman says, you know, there's lots of crazy things in the world. You know, it talks about a crystal ball on this island called Chomilking, Um and um, talks about the the sea folk, which is which is a whole new type of people that we've now introduced into another group of people, you know, like that, that we get their first hint off that there's this deal called the sea folk. Um, uh, and they're looking for their chosen one, you know, which is another, you know, so there's all these little, little things, you know, I don't know if you guys read into that at all, but that's something else. And then, you know, he's just going on and on about crazy things he's found and throughout the world. And uh, I love this scene. So I don't know if you guys want to talk about all these things, but uh, I think it's great. Every time we meet a new character that just starts dumping stuff on us, there'd be stranger things in the world than this, though. <laughs> on Tremble King, one of the Sea Folk's Isles, there'd be stone hen, 50 feet high, sticking out a hill, clutching a crystal sphere. And I'm like, yeah, so this could be a sea boat captain telling stories because they do that. Yeah. Or in book 14, the fucking crystal sphere could be what saves everybody. <laughs> so do do I highlight it? Do I underline it? Like, do I put a tab on the page? Sure. I don't know. Yeah. Mental note, at least. Yeah. We'll see. <laughs> I love it. He goes into detail about the breaking, which we have kind of forgotten about this. Yeah. It was like mentioned and then forgotten. But so the breaking left a thousand wonders behind. And there have been half a dozen empires or more since. And I don't do the... The voice very well. Try at least. <laughs> Neither do I. The room does the voice. <laughs> he said some rivaling Otter Hawkins, everyone leaving things to see and find. The light sticks and razor lace and heart stones, a crystal lattice covering an island, and it hums when the moon is up. A mountain howled into a bow, and in its center, a silver spike a hundred spans high. And any who come within a mile of it dies. Rust ruins and broken bits and things found at the bottom of the sea. Things not even the oldest books know the meaning of. I've gathered a few myself. Things that you never dreamed of in more places than you can see in ten lifetimes. That would be the strangeness that will draw you on. So this kind of takes you back to that post-apocalyptic America or world in general. Like I like now that I've read this part, I'm like, well, right before that, he was talking about animal bones that the world has never seen held together by ropes. And I think about Washington D.C. I think about the Smithsonian. Yeah, yeah. I think about the dinosaurs and everything. I think about museums in general, and though they call it a palace, like if you look at the Smithsonian, like you could easily mistake that for. A large power, oh, sure. like, the, the whole national mall, that whole area. Exactly, like yeah. that's, that was where my thought went. I was thinking about the national mall, and then he he talks about other things that you can kind of, you know, of course we know the Otter Hawkins, but then he talks about light uh, lighting sticks. We haven't seen guns brought into this yet. Okay. So maybe lighting sticks or guns. I see you have uh, boom boom sticks, razor <laughs> <laughs> razor lace armor. Um, Heartstones is about the only one that I just couldn't really come up with a thought unless it's some type of um, uh, like 
can't think of the word right now. We're on this now. Take it yeah, over. That's right. Some kind of explosive device. This episode is brought to you by Rome. <laughs> yeah. Thanks, my God. It's Thanks. delicious. Thanks, Gosling. Thanks, Gosling. We appreciate you. But a mountain howled into a, uh, hollowed into a bowl in its center, a silver spike 100 spans high. Satellite. Ah. Oh, wow. Are so, you this smart? Or are you googling? Because <laughs> you keep you keep you keep fucking with me when we do these episodes. And no, you're right. This is oh anything gosh, that comes good. within a mile of it dies. Now that kind of that's the only part that throws me about that. But we have some type of radiation, radiation sickness that's okay. caused by the satellite. Maybe the people of this world, hmm. you know, if they're tapping into a power. Maybe the power is something else, and maybe they're. You know, born or implanted with something like we just don't know yeah. enough. Maybe aliens came. Who the fuck knows yeah. at this point? Sure. Uh, <laughs> you damn dirty apes. <laughs> but so, I love that that'd be the strangeness that would draw you on. I mean, I think that kind of shows you where Ian and I are in regards to the book. Mm-hmm. Like, Every time I read something new in the different chapters, yeah. I want to keep going. It, there will be moments where I'm like, I'm done with this book for a little yeah. bit. Yeah. And then that one sentence is like, you got me. Why did you do that? You got me. <laughs> and, 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 and the, going on from here, you know, Rand says, you know, I just want to go home after all this. And Bale mm-hmm. Dunn's like, you won't want to go home after, after all this. You know, the world's going to hook you. And, you know, you're going to see all these things. And you're going to go home and realize this little village is not, it's, it's too small for me now. Like, it's because I've seen everything. Um, <laughs> too small for me now. I won't go Debbie Downer with this, but again, if we got if we got any other uh, vets on the line, the whole comment of uh, going home or the welcome home you get, uh, it's not. You never go. You there's there's no going back to the home you once remembered. Yeah, you mentally changed. It's so not the same in finding the new home. Oof, good luck. It's <laughs> difficult. Yeah. Sure. I had, pl- I had plans of coming home. And we're still figuring that out. <laughs> <laughs> sure. So, yeah, um, you know, it, and then, you know, he talks, turns to Matt, and Matt's kind of off in his own little world, mutter- muttering still about treasure. Like, I think he's just trying to hide the treasure. <laughs> he's just going on about this treasure. Like, kind of very, very, um, you know, New York. My precious. Yeah. Who's our patron? Someone give her a shout out because that's, that's our Lord of the Rings There's reference. The Ring there it is. My precious. And to, be, and to be fair, we all did the like gestures and acted it out at the same time. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Uh, so um, now we've smash cut to a new scene and Rand's on top of the mast. Um, and he's just sitting up there. He's all giddy. He's laughing. He's been up there for like a while. And he's kind of laughing at all the people down below him. And he kind of gives a description of, of, of looking down and, um, and, and you know, being on top of a mast is not a safe place. Um, I've been to the top of a mast before, always in a bosun's chair or a harness. But, uh, I was going to say, um, it depends on the conditions. Yeah. Uh, you're not in a crow's nest. It's not a boat built for a spotter yeah, up top. Yeah, exactly. Um, Nobody helped him up there. Yeah. And I, I mean, I've been up to tell the mass underway uh, in a harness, but free climbing. No, that's, that's, that's yeah. Um, yeah. I've had to fix something up there, but yeah. it's, uh, it's <laughs> look, and I'll let you physics majors do the math and blast it on discord. But 
the the ocean ain't flat and neither are rivers. So if the boat at sea level is rocking just a little bit, if you're 10 feet up, it's rocking a little bit more. If you're 15 feet up, it's rocking a little bit more. If you're 30 feet up at the top of the mast and there's a little bit of rock and rolling on the water, you are moving. It's oh, yeah. it's scary up there. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, Rand's all giddy. He's, like, smiling and laughing about it. you know. And then he starts being, like, super reckless. Like, he puts his arms out and kind of just bounces, like, I guess his butt on the top of the mast. I'm like, the king of the world. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm the king of the world, I think. You know, and, and then loses his balance and, like, barely catches himself on the force day. And they they describe what a force day is in this chapter. It's it's the it's the they say it's a rope. It's it's a I guess in these old boats it might have been a rope. It's a cable or a rope that runs from the top a of the line. mast um, down a line. That's what we call them. Yeah, there's no ropes on a boat. Um, it's a, it's an old navy joke as well. Like uh, when you have new people that come on the boat, um, you know you, you tell them that there are no ropes on a boat, um, that they're only lines. Everything's a line. And then you tell them to go below and look for a hundred feet of shoreline. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and that's why we always run around because they are very desperate to please you. Yeah. Find it. <laughs> You'll find shoreline. Uh, yeah, it's over there. Uh, it's, it's the beach. That's Damn. the shoreline. <laughs> that <one I> got. <laughs> anyway, good old jokes. We pull new people. Uh, so, so um yeah so um oh uh, you know tom's up there yelling at him telling him to get down and at this point like Rand realizes the whole crew's looking at him he's like oh hi like <laughs> hey, tom when did you come up here hey, yeah thanks for joining me thanks for joining me yeah <laughs> What's um, everybody doing? So, what do you guys think about all this uh all right so obviously it's giving some more insight into what Rand has in him, the capabilities he has. But kind of like how you mentioned, uh, the first thing I was reading the description of, was he in a crow's nest? Because that would make more sense. You could climb, you know, some sort of line or some sort of ladder to get up there. And you're, But no, uh, he's just on a raw mast, climbed to the top. Uh. So, so something happened. He got it in his shorts to just get up there. And then... I mean, I don't want want to jump to my favorite fucking part. And this is is the part I was referencing earlier. Mm -hmm. So before we get there, they did have a question for us in our live chat, which they thought that we could answer, which was on an 80-foot boat, how tall would the mast be? So the general rule of thumb. How many masts are there? Yeah. So if it's – yeah. So if it's – it could be multiple – on an 80-foot boat, there might be multiple masts. Uh, The main main sail, the main mast uh, would be the largest one. Um, there could be a foremast, there could be a mizzen mast, there could be a stay mast. There's lots of different masts they could have depending on how many masts they have. But the general thumb, if you're having a sloop, which would be a one-mast ship, um, would be uh, about the length of the boat and a half. So if you're looking at 80 feet, you take 80 plus 40 feet, 120-foot mast. That's the general thumb if you're in a sloop. Now, if you're on a schooner or a different type of rig, they might have two smaller masts. Yeah. There's lots of different variations. So there's no what they don't go into enough description of this boat for me to give a good answer. But so so be, because <laughs> because he rides down the forestay, you're talking about the forward most mast. So even yeah. if you have a, a y'all set up where you have a mizzen mast or whatever, sure. you're ta- he's on the tallest. He's on the tallest. And on an 80 foot boat, I would say it's at least 80 feet. It's at least 80 feet. Yeah. And I don't know if you've ever stood. 80 feet looking over a ledge or like a dumbass like me jumped from 80 feet into an abandoned rock quarry yeah. that filled with water. But that's, that's high. Put it in perspective. 80 feet is like eight stories. I mean, like you think about yeah. an eight story building. 
that's eight stories high. It's you're up there. And you're claiming <laughs> even if this boat is made of wood, what do you think? The mast at the top, because the old wooden boats, they still narrow towards the top. So he's holding sure. on to six inches in uh, yeah. diameter, sure. like tops. Right. Like it's right. it's sketchy. Yeah. But Very but, but he, he he doesn't care. So yeah. yeah. So get to your fair part now. <laughs> oh man. Um so yeah, so he's up top. Thanks, and he, Discord. You distracted yeah. me. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, so we um they they he's at the top of mass being all giddy. Tom's yelling at him. And he's like, You want me to come down? Okay. Well, hold on, the giddy part before we let you I'm sorry, I'm breaking to it. Back it up a little bit, back my, it up my friend. A little bit. Gotta do it. Uh, but you know, at the end of the day, it, it brings to mind first off the fact that he's up there is a little mad. So is he now into a madness phase? Is he a man that is tapped into the power, which if he controlled the boom, this would be about that time span where he would be coming to this point where he's entering into the madness. Right. Um, We have this inclination that he's not afraid of heights. He's been up that high before in trees because it's stated that in the book, maybe he is a man that has the power and he's an air elemental. So he's comfortable there. Um, And then that kind of leads to where I know you're going next. If you're comfortable with the height, you're comfortable with the air, you'll do some crazy shit in the air. Yeah, but look, I would love to plug a story right here to be like, yeah, so I got this story about uh, one time where I was totally like what Rand just did. No fucking way. Uh, It's like what Alan said. I've been to the top of a mast on a big boat one time in a bosun's chair. And I'm not afraid of heights. I've done stupid stuff from high places. I've repelled out of helicopters. I've jumped out of perfectly fine airplanes and decided, <laughs> let me jump out of this shit. And still, uh, I think as far as heights go, the top of a mass on a boat rocking around the waves, uh, pretty freaking intimidating. And he did it with no assistance. And then when it came time to dismount, it's not even like, so Tom's conversation to him didn't even bring him back to reality. It was just enough to make him go, okay, people are looking at me. I should come back down. But even then he didn't take the safest way down. He travels down the freaking forest day and does a fucking like somersault. On wait, <laughs> who, who's that chick right now that is setting all like just the crazy records in gymnastics? Simone Biles. Simone Biles. So that's who I'm picturing. He goes, all right, Tom, let me Simone this shit down the forest day. Does a triple Lundy and lands it perfectly with a half a step. And the whole crowd is like, 10.0. I bet you everybody. And then Matt goes, my precious, but we're not there yet. Yeah. I bet you everybody that read this book went and looked up these parts of the shit. Well, minus two. Yeah, yeah, minus two. Like for me, I was like, I have two like nautical nerds. I will get an understanding when I <laughs> <laughs> sure. from the uh, top all the way to the front. Yeah, yes. and see, I know enough he about books to be dangerous. Yeah. Like yeah. I know what the what's what's going on. The, the technical names, no, but the imagery in my mind was just batshit crazy because I've been on. Oh yeah, it's, it, it is it was, crazy. You're, you're, not, you're, you're not wrong. Not wrong. Crazy. No one would do that. And and (laughs) so Jordan did a good job in at least explaining this. If if you trust that everybody on the boat that works on the boat has experience getting all over the boat, and everybody was eyeballing him like, "What the fuck is he doing?" Like there was nobody comfortable with it. Right. Yeah. 
So he, you know, he lands in a somersault and kind of flares out like he did a trick, and then looks at Matt, and Matt's holding his precious, his dagger. He's precious. Yeah. <laughs> he served dagger with a golden scarab, worked with a strange, worked in strange symbols. Like, I want one. I don't care what it really looks like, but I want one. I'm sitting here thinking we were right. We had that prediction. Bingo. No. I was going to say, I ain't trying to be selfish or nothing, but when I get one right and I recognize <laughs> it, I'm trying to bing, bing, bing. I'm, uh, I'm going to buy myself a steak dinner. <laughs> <laughs> but we see Matt is off mentally in a whole nother world at this point. Yeah. There, there's yeah. a there's a connection to this item that he took. Mm-hmm. So now you have to rethink. So uh, helping who who is our guy? We, we're trying to uh, more death. So more, more death. death. Yeah. How do I not remember that? Yeah. Less death, a little bit of death, more death. So more death is like help me get this shit out, right? And everybody's like, no, no, we're not gonna do it. And then Matt does it because Matt's Matt. So. In in what in what way is more death released? So is Matt at this point? Is there just some sort of connection to it because he just kind of stole this little piece, or did he actually release more death? And is he at risk of being taken over by being absorbed by more death because he walked away with this piece of treasure? Yeah. Like, I, and I had this thought. I I didn't bring it up earlier, but when I mentioned when my phone died and I texted it to Alan and I guess he apparently threw it in the episode where I said, Matt stole treasure. Yeah. Somebody say it like, that's why I wanted to make that point is there's going to be some repercussions from that. Yeah, sure. And it's, it, it's clearly not going to be as simple as, Oh, I'm having a bad day. Like more death is going to find a way to, to get his way out. So sure. I think Matt's dangerous. Yeah. I resemble that comment. So he doesn't take fault. No, he doesn't. It's your fault. Yours and Harry's. You're the guys who dragged me away before you can put it back. You know, and um. But to me, that's evidence that the evil's already taken root. Because I don't think that's part of Matt's nature that we learned early on. Matt doesn't trust anyone. He's like saying, "Don't tell anybody." Not yeah, Tom, exactly. not anybody. That's why the, I I feel like the evil's already taken root in him. Oh yeah, whatever definitely. the evil is, that yes. evil took root the minute they left. I I agree. And like I tried to play the same trick that he did. He he said when I was thinking, what two or three episodes ago, he said I took it. So Moraine's warning about his gifts don't count. And then right away, you won't tell anybody, Rand. They might try to steal it. Keep it. No, it ain't about stealing. It's about keeping the secret. Yeah, exactly. That's how evil works. Yeah. Twisted. Another evil. Yeah. Wait, can you do your like semi evil chuckle laugh? <laughs> <laughs> okay, I feel, I feel like that was appropriate. Yeah, it works. Yeah. So, yeah, Matt thinks that they're the only ones left. They stick together. Um, and, and Rand kind of presses him, asks about the dreams. You know, did you have any dreams? And Matt, you know, basically says, yeah, I had dreams, but I don't want to talk about them. You know, um, so obviously we have from the previous chapter that Perrin had the maze Aaron dream. It, yeah. Rand had the dream, obviously, in the beginning of this chapter. And now Matt also says he had dreams, but he doesn't even want to talk about it. So obviously all three of them are still having this mind meld dream, um, you know, all together. Um, don't know if you guys, yeah. But we don't know if they're having the same dream. Sure. We don't know if 
Matt's dream matches the other two's dream because Matt's dream could be now about more death. Sure. He could be losing himself in that. Right. My experience with, with evil and from what I understand, so it's my perspective, the, the greatest weapon they have is deception. And it's possible that these three characters are strongest when they're bound together. So what is evil going to try and do? Evil's going to try and separate them and drive them apart. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I started thinking about this as Perrin's character was developing. I was all excited, but then all of a sudden I was like, wait a minute, who is our leader? Is it Rand? Uh, I, I'm still convinced that Matt's going to blow on the horn, whatever the frick that means, because they keep talking <laughs> about him in the horn. So Matt has significance. Uh, but Perrin recently is starting to shine and come out as the leader. And if they're all developing these different talents and they start to believe them in, in themselves more and more and their confidence grows, at some point there's going to be a clash. Like who's in charge? Who's right? Maybe there's, I'm oversimplifying it, but maybe there's three different paths to go on and neither one of them wants to agree with another one. So they all go different ways. Well, like, see here, I, I'm, I'm following you and I'm agreeing with you. Um, we already had this idea that Rand was not of the two folk. I, yeah, we, I, I still agree with that. We know Matt is. Really? He, he channeled. True, true. Perrin, we don't know who Perrin's parents are. Perrin goes deep. Perrin's connection is pre Aes Sedai. It's pre the one true power. His but connection right now is... Folk, is it a two-folk connection? Because It's a one-and-a-half-folk. It's pre-two-folk. <laughs> He's hanging out with the motherfucking wolves. My, my, his liver is failing at 20 years old, <laughs> and his eyes are turning yellow. Wait, hear me <laughs> Again, if you have your liver failure, I apologize. Like it's, 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 it's Hear me out. God bless Canada. <laughs> <laughs> this is why we never have serious moments. <laughs> this is why we record separate. <laughs> he might edit that out. He might not. Why not? Uh, uh, we'll see. Uh, uh, but we, we had a conversation with Rand and, um, and our wisdom. And he asked, was he the only one that wasn't born in the two river? Right. And, we never got the answer, but there was a hesitation. Bingo. Karen uh, isn't of the two river. See, and the way he addresses his air quotes parents, it makes you wonder if they're his parents. Well, they're not. Was, they're, he's more or less working for, he's an apprentice to the blacksmith. It, exactly. Those are his parents. I put yeah. wild air quotes on. Yeah, there, but yeah, yeah. I know. I agree with you. There, there's a backstory there, and so maybe they're all kings in their own right. What if Jordan was trying to be super unique instead of instead of starting out with the main character, he slowly develops the main character, and then six books in, he's like, all these other people you thought were the shit. Just kidding. Not important. Parents say today. <laughs> Like eventually he comes. Eventually he learns to use his axe and bingo. But like Perrin may be the king of one clan of people that had the power to manipulate animals. Old, old, old. And then we have Rand, who's like king of a warrior tribe, and then we are a warring tribe Mm -hmm. because there's a distinction between tribe and then you've got city. Yeah, and absolutely. you have Matt, who's a king. So you've got 
the king of a city. So you've got different levels of people. You've sure. got your low income, mid income, high income. Yeah. You got your There's you know, you, you've got your three different people. And maybe that's what's been missing all along with all these other false dragons is you need all of these pieces coming together and they've never existed. They haven't happened at the same time, but now you have the possibility that all of these might sure. click at the same time. Yeah. Well, I'm, wait. I'm assuming the end of this series is a happy ending, <laughs> and maybe that, and maybe that's where I'm wrong. So, gosh, yeah. Well, let me stop. All right. Then we end with Rand. What happened to me? Like what? Yeah, he realizes that, the, like all this was just kind of a. Yeah, he surprised himself about what happened. Um, and it ends with Tom actually going to teach him some tricks and, yeah, and Rand thinking, what's wrong with me? You know, they got to give me the tarp on before I go mad. End of scene. End scene. End scene. Yeah. Quick. So he recognizes. So he has to know. Well, maybe he doesn't. I don't know. Rand's a fucking moron. Well, we don't know how he got up there. We don't know that he knows how he got up there. Sure. He just knows he was enjoying the moment. And yeah. then... He was down, and then he realizes because he looked up. He's like, "Well, shit, that, man, that was kind of crazy." Anyway, this is what we normally do after we end. We yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, any final thoughts before we wrap up? Um, I could end the book right here and be happy. You should not. Why did Rand? Why did Rand climb the mast? Why did he climb the mast? Yeah, that was a question I was asked. What do you guys think? Hmm. Well, he just made a comment. He doesn't know. So how the hell are we supposed to know? No, <laughs> <laughs> he, uh, he wanted to get high. <laughs> I really think it was driven by curiosity. Like, I'm the type of person, I'm definitely afraid of falling. I don't mind climbing a height. It's when I look down and realize how high I've climbed that I freeze. Sure. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, it seems like he was trying to get a sense of the world. It seems like Rand's always trying to figure things out. So where's the best place to get the best view of the world, but on top of it? Sure. It's kind of symbolic. The eye of the world. He's trying to get on top of the world. He's trying to get the a best good, view. Best view. Yeah. That's where's where my mind goes. Welcome to my rabbit hole. Sure. Or what if what if he was controlled by an evil force to do it? That's true. They could be trying to figure out where he's at by tapping into his mind. If they have this idea that he's linked to Beelzebub. I got no idea, man. Yeah. You're looking at me as if I have an opinion. I'm sitting over here going, I don't know. <laughs> All right. How many days were they on the boat at this point? I forget. I don't know. Too um, long. Too long. Too long. Um, so anyway, um, I want to go ahead and wrap the episode up just for a length of time because we are going – and then we're, gonna, we're going to uh, hop on over and talk to our Discord after we're done. So just real fast, a couple of things. Um, um, yeah, go for it. Um, he's pouring more rum as we speak because we're going to hang out some for a while afterwards. But um, so where you can find us, uh, we can be found on social media pretty much everywhere: Facebook, Instagram, Twitter at the Wheel Reads. Um, the Wheel Reads at gmail.com is our email address. We're also on Discord as we've been talking about this entire episode. Uh, we got a great Discord channel and more and more people joining. Uh, we had a bunch of people join tonight, which is kind of cool. Um, I think I saw actually Nablus uh join my Discord, which I was kind of. Shocked because I thought he said he wasn't joining me more last time we talked to him. But uh, anyway, welcome, Nablus, um, but <laughs> to, to, to our show. Um, but yeah, so uh, Discord, feel free to join. The link's in the description of our podcast. We also do a Patreon. So if you feel inclined to give to us, we're doing these live recordings right now for everyone. Um, 
in the future, we're only going to do it for our Patreons. Um, we might every once in a while do one for everyone again, but uh, we're going to try to make it more of a regular thing for our Patreons. So if you guys like this, uh, think about it. Um, uh, our Patreon levels start at $1 a month. Um, so it's pretty, it's pretty low entry level. Um, and you know, if you just want to do it one time, you just pay $1 and then cancel your subscription. I don't really care. Um, <laughs> but, but you know, it works. Uh, you'll, you'll get it for that month. Um, and then, um, you know, going up from there, you get more content and more stuff uh, at the next tiers up as well. So think about that as well. If you guys are so inclined, the links to that are as well in the description of this episode. Um, also whatever platform or service you listen to us on, uh, whether it's Apple or Google, Google podcast, our, 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 our uh, overcast, our Podbean. you know, there's a million Spotify, you know, like subscribe, share this with friends. If you have a friend that's on the fence about reading all the time, um, you know, encourage them to get into it. Um, also tell them that um, we're a great companion con- uh, podcast. So if someone wants to read along with us, I, I enjoy seeing new, new listeners to our podcast. Um, Even so, if they're not big time readers, listening could be interesting in the sense that they would gather enough of the book to where they could have an intelligible conversation with you. They'll enjoy the TV show once it comes out. Then, of course, that patronage is, of course, giving to something you're enjoying. So if you enjoy what you're hearing and you want us to be able to give more to you all, everything that we get goes directly back into it. And we, the, the $1 that we have received has been great. And we definitely used it for <laughs> sure for this podcast. Yeah. So that's it for this week. Um, you know, I think uh, we're going to wrap up and, and we'll talk to everybody in discord, but other than that, uh, we'll see you guys next week. Until next time. Peace. Thank you for listening to the wheel of reads. See y'all next time.